Cinema Oddities, Late Night Movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I am the fucking sultan of slick. I am the rule of fucking cool. You want to be a gangster? You want to be a thug? You sit at my fucking feet, gather the pearls that emanate forth from me. Because I'm the original, straight, firstborn, most pimp Mac fucking hustler, original gangsters gangster. This is a movie that I've been so excited to talk about (laughs) since I first saw it and have become completely intrigued and enamored by it. Giggly. Or, as it's truly pronounced, Gili rhymes with really. Now, I know Zach and I are both very excited to get into this, but before we do, there is one order of business we have to discuss, and it is another one of Scott E.'s Podbean comments. (laughs) (laughs) Have to get this out of the way first, of course, because it it does does not fit in to the, uh, the giggly discussion that we're about to have. But Scott E., on our Tomorrowland episode, everybody knows the uh, the famous Tomorrowland episode, offered up another subtitle. Scotty's opinion is, subtitle this episode, Rob just wants to retreat into the Cinemodities bar and get drunk on toxic cosmopolitans because there's nowhere else to go. That's a huge subtitle. <laughs> but I don't disagree. And, and... I don't know if Zach has seen this comment, but it's very important to get yeah, this well, on I've air. Seen it. I, oh, here I've we go. seen this. He says, another great episode, gents. Let Rob rant more often. And then he says, you know who sent this. We do know who sent this. I Maybe he thinks, since he's the one who's giving us subtitles, that's what he means by you know who sent this. But it does say his name on Podbean. So, <laughs> so we do definitely know who sent it. He didn't like submit this anonymously. But you hear that, Zach? Let Rob rant more often. I have a fan out no, there. Thank you, no, Scott E. No, 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 you don't. No, you don't. You won't go. You know, Scott E, you're going to be blocked from making comments. You're going to click on Podbean. You'll be like, you're not allowed to listen to Cinemodies anymore. <laughs> we, don't, we don't encourage Rob. That's rule number one of Cinemodies. The first rule is uh, never encourage Rob. I picked Dragon Blade from him, and I got him in, in my corner. Perfect. jeez. Oh, All right. I got, I got to start rallying the other Cinemodies listeners. Okay, Emily, are you Team Rob or Team Zach? Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which side Sorry. of the restaurant are you sitting in? Exactly. The Civil War <laughs> at the Cinemati's restaurant. Oh, okay. With that out of the way, I believe that's our only piece of, of fan mail. Uh, we have to get into this movie. The, the, the insanity. I don't even know if there's a right word to describe what Giggly is. This is, it's, it's just so insane. I guess maybe how we found it or how we came to watch it, I guess. I think this is something we both were aware of. We knew that it was considered one of the worst movies of all time. I remember, you know, some of the advertising back in the day, you know, they were going off of the Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, them being in love. And so, you know, they made a movie together, I guess, just like the Cruise and Cruise when we talked about Vanilla Sky. But it actually came from our search for a movie to, uh, I guess, honor Ben Affleck's birthday. We watched a bunch, and we eventually settled on, well, one, not even doing Ben Affleck's birthday on this podcast, and mm-hmm. two, Justice League, and it moved over to the Star Wars realm, because I, I guess Zach had some way to combine that with Star Wars. Oh, yeah, it was Chris Terrio, that's right. Good old Chris Terrio. 
But in in the search for movies, I know Zach watched some. What did you watch? Bounce with Ben Affleck. Bounce I, paycheck. Yeah, we both watched paycheck. And then I watched Runner Runner. And I also watched Giggly because I was just like, oh, I remember hearing about this. It's supposed to be terrible. And I watched it, and I was completely enthralled by it. Not because it's it's a, a, an enjoyable movie. I, I because it's an enthralling movie. I think that's kind of one of the things I want to say. I've now seen this movie four times. Every time I start it, I am shocked that it is two hours long. Because to me, I honestly think it moves. Maybe I'm a crazy... Well, I'm definitely a crazy person. But this movie really moves for me. Like, I am staring at the screen with morbid curiosity 100% of the time. And I know before we recorded, Zach said he hasn't watched this movie enough or something along those lines... But did you have a similar sense, or was it was it a little more painful for you to get through? This is oh, this is such a weird movie to talk about because, yes, I my, I think I told Rob last night when we were recording something that I kind of struggled with this. I kept falling asleep through it over and over and over again. The problem with this movie is that it's just it's such sustained insanity. Yes, that you eventually kind of get lulled almost into a trance that put me to sleep a couple of times. <laughs> sure, sure. It's so crazy. It's it's there's something weirdly hypnotic about this movie in that it's like it does like with any sort of weird movie, you need points where you have your highs and your lows. And this movie's just like throttling it like a hundred plus miles per hour in a given time. Like it never slows down. There's always something weird or goofy happening. And I think that's what was after a while, you just kind of like it's like when you're in a plane, or I'm sorry, like well, you see like the jet fighters when they, they they're training, and oh, you do yeah. certain like after a while, your body just can't take the immense pressure, so you just pass out. Mm. That's what was that's what was happening to me while watching Gili. My body could not <laughs> handle this at times, and it was passing out in the process. <laughs> that's that's good. The force was getting to you. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of those videos, like you said, the, the the pilots where they just, you know, you see their heads slump over and and then they pop back up a few seconds later. But in this case, it's kind of like once it gets on you, it might knock you out for good. <laughs> it's definitely one of those because there's like, like this, is, folks. This is gonna be a Rob episode mostly because he's done infinite amount, like more amount of research than I have for this. Not because I don't want to. This is very similar to like a Wonder Shows in where I look forward to going back and revisiting this. Like, don't be surprised Like a couple weeks from now you hear me evangelizing about this because this movie is truly something special. Oh, yeah. And I welcome this, it. If we, uh, if we want to turn this into a yearly, nay, monthly thing we do, <laughs> <laughs> I would totally be down. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is up there. Like, I, I know in the past I've talked about, like, Clash of the Titans when it comes to cinema. He's, like, he's really, like, the, the behemoths. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I have a new classification because this is, like, we talk about elves. In other films of that sort of ilk, they're like genuinely inexplicable at times. Yet we have stuff like this is definitely within the camp of like Book of Henry, where it's like I wouldn't call this a titan. It's almost like the Cinematis Cataclysm. It's like these <laughs> things that have the power to destroy the world, and unless we like lock them up in the vault, um, we kind of like energy binds and stuff. Like there's there's a great visual. I'm not sure if Rob's ever seen it. The film Immortals. It's the 300 ripoff with Henry Cavill where they have the Titans locked like in a mountain and they have them like in this weird gold box. I feel like this is what we need to do with things like Gili and Book of Henry. They need to be locked away to, to not harm the masses. <laughs> I like that. I like that for sure. 
I don't think elves can hurt people. I think elves, as is, is bizarre as it is, will never hurt anybody. Book of Henry, Gili have the power to hurt people. And I think they need to be locked away. <laughs> like, you know, in, uh, these go in the Cinemodities menagerie. <laughs> essentially, like, you know, Disney has the Disney vault. We have the Cinemodities vault. We lock Perfect. them in there to keep, to keep the public safe. We are, we are heroes, folks. We're doing, we're doing the Lord's work. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Calling ourselves heroes. Perfect. <laughs> that, that's the subtitle for this episode. Uh, Giggly, colon, Rob and Zach, true American heroes. <laughs> no, no, Rob. We are universe heroes. These, these, universe. these things are, this is larger than the world, folks. Book of Henry Gigli. These, these are, these have the power to hurt. We're going men in black scale. Like we're saving not just our locker, but all the lockers. <laughs> all the lockers. All the little like furry troll creatures in certain ones. Oh, perfect. Well, Zach, uh, Zach said it best. Um, I, I have done an insane amount of digging into this movie and the director of this movie, because like I said, I've become just so intrigued by it. And I, I think before we get into that, because uh, I think a, a big part of this discussion, yes, we will we will get to making fun of this movie. Don't worry. There's plenty uh, of great quotes, as I also started the episode with, that we're going to get into. But uh, I think that since this is in our incomprehensible blockbuster series, we have to highlight that I think for the third week in a row, we have yet another different type of incomprehensible. Because I believe our Vanilla Sky discussion was very much, well, it's incomprehensible how this made so much money. Last week with Charlie's Angels, it was incomprehensible in terms of story. We had no idea anybody's motivations in that movie. And this is more incomprehensible for why it exists or how it exists, I think. Because I, I want to know if you agree with me on this, Zach. The plot is pretty much cut and dry. It's pretty straightforward, right? Like you said, this is a very different cinemati. I'm sorry, incomprehensible blockbuster. And it really is, like, on paper, everything, like, oh, like I, I did some research on this, and I know how kind of the, uh, the wheels came off the cart. But the final result, like, how anybody thought this was, like, releasable... Like the amount of hubris yeah. on Sony's part to think, oh, we're going to release this into the world. And just because we have enough star power behind it, it's going to somehow make money. Um, I get it. After you spend uh, close to $75 million on something, I get you just can't let it die in a vault somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but, that, but that's what we're doing right now. We are, we are putting it back in the vault where it <laughs> should have remained. Yeah, we're taking it out for a little bit of cultural anthropology, but then it's going right back in. <laughs> <laughs> we are locking it away, folks. After this, no one's ever allowed to talk about Geely again or watch it. We're going to be the last people to ever watch or talk about Geely after this. Oh, right. So uh, this movie came out in the summer, July 30th, I believe, of 2003. A glorious, so, glorious year yeah. for movies, as we've learned. Post 9-11, they still thought this was a good idea. <laughs> so it's directed by someone that Zach and I are familiar with, but I don't believe Cinemodities is. Someone by the name of Martin Brest, whose movie prior to this, prior to uh, Giggly, was Meet Joe Black. And I don't know, have we ever ever talked about our, what is it, a discussion on Meet Joe Black in two parts on Knights of Vader? Did that ever come up on Cinemodities? It's been referenced, but uh, no, it's never, because I don't even think it's, I don't even think on Knights of Vader that's listed as a Meet Joe Black discussion. I think it's the May the 4th discussion. That's, oh, that's, that's the right. thing. Yeah. If you're interested in that discussion, go look up Knights of Vader and look for the May 4th, 2019 episode. It's Rob will tell you a little bit about it now, though, but that's the easiest way to find it. Yes. Uh, I, I believe, if I recall correctly, 
Um, for Star Wars Day, May the 4th, Zach and I decided to not discuss Star Wars, or, or Zach decided, because I think he dislikes that holiday, in air quotes. And so we discussed Meet Joe Black, the Martin Brest film for 98, I think. And because the Phantom Menace trailer was before it. And we will get to that. Meet Joe Black made money at the box office. I don't know if it made money overall, but we I think the thesis of that, or the, the start of that episode on Knights of Vader was that it made a lot of money because people just wanted to see the Phantom Menace trailer, right? Pretty much. Oh, right. So we watched Meet Joe Black, uh, or at least Zach wanted to watch it, and when he pitched it to me, he was like, the only problem is it's three hours long. And that's that's important, how long that movie is. That's going to come up later when we discuss Martin Brest. But... I said, oh, God, I don't want to do this. So he had the fantastic of a idea of he would take the first hour and a half and I would take the second hour and a half and we would try to muddle through what this movie was about. And I think we did a pretty good job. Um, Brad Pitt gets hit by a car. Brad Pitt becomes oh, death. <laughs> I forgot Brad about Pitt, that. Brad Pitt gets reborn when death leaves his body. Death has sex with Claire Forlani. Jeffrey Tambor's subplot is that he might be a pedophile, right? <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh man, oh, Rob, I can't handle this episode. I might have an annual. I might just my mind just might start collapsing. I, like, after a while, just Rob's just talking. It's just like a loud, like, like it's like it's like a David Lynch just like like blaring void sound. You hear your head's just, gonna your head's gonna pop off and the baby's gonna slowly come out. <laughs> something like that. My, I don't think I can handle this conversation. But continue. All right, so that was the movie prior to Giggly in 1998. But if we go back even further, Martin Brest got his start with what I've only been told and read is a very, very well-done short film called Hot Dogs for Gauguin. And I tried my damnedest, and I could not find a copy of this. I still really want to see it. So comment below if you, have any, if you know how I can find this. But his short film had Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman in some of their first roles, and apparently it's great. It got huge acclaim, and it kind of paved his way into the studio system. And now, okay, keep in mind, we're, we're talking about one of the worst movies ever, Gigli. We talked about Meet Joe Black. When he, Martin Brest breaks into the studio system, he directs Going in Style, Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run, and Scent of a Woman. Now, out of the four of those, I've only ever seen Beverly Hills Cop, and it was a long, long time ago. But all of these do really well, it seems. Going in Style was the only one I couldn't find a lot of information about. But of course, as everybody knows, Beverly Hills Cop was a huge hit. Midnight Run, I think, has somewhat of a cult status, and it did make some money, I believe. And Scent of a Woman won Martin Brest some awards. Like, Martin Brest is uh, apparently not a bad director if you look at everything prior to Meet Joe Black. He got Golden Scent of a Woman got Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture in a, a Drama. And he got nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Director. That's crazy to me. Have you ever seen any of those prior movies? I, I have not, Rob. But the only thing you should really know about Scent of a Woman is uh, Al Pacino and Hoo-Ah! Hoo-Ah! Hoo <laughs> that, that's all you need to know. Like, yeah, like, I think that's the only scene I've, I've viewed, yeah, just from, I guess, cultural osmosis. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's one of those moments. Everybody know, Nobody's ever seen Scent of a Woman in 2020, but... We all know. Hoo-ah! 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 <laughs> Hoo-ah! Yes, uh, maybe, uh, maybe we'll get to that one day. I don't know. It's apparently something... I read the synopsis and what, Al Pacino is a blind dude who gets some dude... Hires some, like, young whippersnapper to help him out in life and he meets the love of his life or something like that. 
Doesn't sound like my type of movie, but I, I'm tempted to just go and consume the Martin Brest filmography at a certain point. <laughs> the thing to point out, though, is that Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black, uh, Midnight Run, I, I think, they're pretty long movies. Like we said, Meet Joe Black is three hours long. Scent of a Woman, I believe, is also three hours long. And then Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop might be shorter, but they they had some power behind him. Of course, Beverly Hills Cop, you got, what, uh, Eddie Murphy and Judge Reinhold. Midnight Run is De Niro and, and Charles Grodin. And there was actually, just a, a few days or a week ago, um, Chris uh, Bumbray from Joe Blow Videos posted a, a, a whole kind of nine-minute story about why he loves Midnight Run. And he says it's a very funny movie and then shows a scene where Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro talk about what animals they would have sex with. Seriously? <laughs> Did you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple there uh, might have taken a shot at. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think we're getting some weird themes of of se- of a sexual nature throughout all of Martin Brest's stuff, but that's kind of what is mind-blowing to me is that this director had so much acclaim, he was making all of these hits, and then he just kind of tanks, you know? Meet Joe Black, like we said, made money at the box office, could have been because of Star Wars, but then Gigli, as we'll get into, is just a colossal bomb. It's one of the biggest bombs of all time, right? That's how it gets ranked, as from what I've seen. It's, uh, it's, I would say less the money... And more of just like it's a disaster on pretty much every level. I think it's one of those films that's just like it's see it's just everything about it's just horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's horribly misguided. And it's nothing short of a disaster. Okay. That's how I, that's how I've always uh, perceived it in the culture. Yes, it is. It is a, a disaster in many respects, and I would say in in the current year, you know, twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. Now, when we're discussing it, when we saw it and discussed it, it's. It might be one of the most offensive things ever. <laughs> oh, it's uh, I have to again, really. There's, there's, oh god, it's unparalleled. Like it really is. Like there is nothing like this. This is as strange as it may sound. This is as unique as a film as like Eraserhead, Dead mm-hmm. Alive. It's, it's up there. There's nothing quite like this on this on this scale. There's probably a bunch of, I'm not saying there's not independent films that are just this weird. That's not what I mean. But I mean, like, on the scale of having the two of the biggest superstars on the face of this earth, at the height of their power, more or less, because even though Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are still around to this day, um, this was really when they were, they captured the zeitgeist. And you have a talented director, you have, God, uh, character actors that everybody knows and loves, and we'll get to them in a moment, and uh, you get some of the most bizarre things ever put to screen. Oh, oh, yes, that is a great way to put it. Most bizarre, absolutely. <laughs> so one thing that I found interesting, um, I guess I guess I should say, uh, a lot of the sources that I found, um, uh, also in the Joe Blow video I referenced, he, he does, of course, talk about Martin Brest to some extent, uh, and uh, Gigli comes up as well, and he makes the joke that everybody makes, you know, uh, I want to rip my eyeballs out with that Asian uh, kung fu technique so I forget what I've seen. Yeah, 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 okay, we'll get to that. You ever heard of Thai Muay Chai? No. Okay. In traditional Thai Muay Chai, there are five levels of digital orb extrusion. That's the gouging out of your opponent's eyeball with one's finger. Now, 
the highest and most difficult to master is my personal favorite, Kaitoi Mai. Loosely translated, that's the rip that takes the past. Now, once the thumb liquefies the eye, it is deftly and immediately replaced by the forefinger. Deep thrust, hooking around, and securing the ocular nerve. And then removing it with such force as to bring with it, by suction, a vital portion of the visual cortex. The part of the brain, as I'm sure you may know, that stores visual memory. Now, the extraordinary element of this move, the, the genius of it, the, the, the absolute poetry of it, is that, aside from the obvious wound, one's opponent is left with no memory of anything he has ever seen. Family, friends, nothing. Hence, but uh, a lot of the information that people were citing from actually came from a 2014 Playboy article, which is a huge retrospective on the career of Martin Brest and where did he go? Because I don't think we've actually said Gigli was his last movie. It's been 17 years about, or 16 plus years, since Martin Brest has done anything. Not a, not a producer credit, not a directing credit, nothing since Gigli. And that is insane. That is really where I latched on to. And if you try and find this article on the Playboy website, it's not there. They give you the sorry not found. But, of course, you can go to the Way, Way Back machine and you can pull it up. And that's exactly what I did. It's a it's an interesting read. Martin Brest has now become a, a point of interest for me. And something that stood out to me that I was very surprised to see was that Brest, at one point, was actually on board as the director of War Games with Matthew Broderick. And not just the director, he's the one who's, who cast Matthew Broderick in that movie. And I found that really interesting. Of course, uh, he did not go on to direct the, the film as it exists now. From what I've read, some of his footage still exists in there. It went to someone whose name I did not write down. But this is really, really interesting for me and or what kind of guided me into, well, what kind of director is Martin Brest? Because after he was fired from War Games, because apparently the studio didn't like his footage, he did an interview with the New York Times and said, quote, Suddenly everybody said there must be something wrong with me. The wunderkind had fallen. I was scared. My next film could have been my last. I wanted to make sure that the next job I took would be absolutely brilliant. And of course it was. It was Beverly Hills Cop, which made an insane amount of money and really, you know, gave him the credibility to make Midnight Run and Scent of a Woman and, and just Scent of a Woman kind of propelled him from there. But this, this was intriguing to me because, as everybody knows, Geely was panned so horribly. It's, it's almost like, you know, as Zach said, shame is why he didn't come back to the movie industry. But it started to form in my head that there's a little hint or a a shell or a seed in Martin Brest of insecurity in his position as a director or in Hollywood. And so I started to dig further and I wanted to know, well, what was he like? Did, was he a pushover? That's something Zach and I have been talking about for a while. You know, is he someone that just does what people want him to do? And I found actually almost the complete opposite. Uh, there's some people that worked on him with Midnight Run that, you know, kind of compared him to Kubrick. He was known for using just huge amounts of film, doing an excessive amount of, ta amount of takes. I found an article, an interview with Brad Pitt, 
Brad Pitt calls him a perfectionist, and even he calls him the obsessor when he was discussing Meet Joe Black. So apparently Martin Brest was just a, a madman behind the camera. He wanted everything perfect. So much so that one of the actors in an interview um, after Midnight Run, kind of a retrospective of it, according to him, during filming of Midnight Run, Martin Brest stopped eating. He just wouldn't eat. And throughout the production, he got skinnier and skinnier, and it was almost ghostly, like a ghost was behind the camera, he described it. That's, that's crazy to me. I never would have expected, knowing just Meet Joe Black and, and Giggly, that you would have someone that dedicated to their craft that they get so zoomed in on something that they, they almost you know, lose the rest of their life. Uh, do you know any other directors or artists that way? I guess directors is what I'm looking for. Has, have you ever heard of that story before? Uh, when it comes to not eating, I, I, I would imagine there's examples of it somewhere. Sure. Um, but on a scale of somebody of this sort of like plateau of a career, not top of my head. Okay. I, I just, I, this is where it really got interesting to me because I was like, oh, like he's, he's a perfectionist. He cares about this completely. And this goes to what I was saying as well with the length of his movies. Meet Joe Black and, and Scent of a Woman are very long, three hours or a little over. And I found that he was very demanding with his studios that he would make the movie he felt he needed to make. I, I, don't, I know we didn't do it for Meet Joe Black. We focused more on the movie in our uh, Knights of Vader May the 4th discussion. But apparently there was a lot of fighting between the studio and Martin Brest for cutting down Meet Joe Black. And I think Zach and I can attest that would have, you know, made that movie probably <laughs> better. It would have made it feel better. But it, like I said, Martin Brest was just demanding. He wanted the three-hour cut. And same thing with Scent of a Woman. He wanted that three hours. And, of course, as we know, I guess people don't mind that as much because Al Pacino won uh, the, the Best Actor Award for that. And so his performance must carry it to some extent. But this got even more interesting when I started reading that when Scent of a Woman was being edited down for TV and airplanes, which they, they have to edit down in some way, or apparently that's what they wanted to do, Brest decided to remove his name from the film and substituted it with an Alan Smithy. Really? So, yeah. So apparently, if you find a Scent of a Woman TV version, it will say directed by Alan Smithy. How this, about that? this blew my mind because this is just now so clear to me with what he said about war games, about how he was so scared about, you know, losing his place in Hollywood and how demanding he was of his, his works, this started to form for me, well, maybe it, it is some sense of shame. If you, make, if you make Giggly and you get panned that bad, you know, of course you're going to go back and lick your wounds. But to not come back to anything for 16-plus years, to me it seems like there's almost some intrinsic sense of... Of, of insecurity, of self-doubt or something like that. And, and that's kind of a bummer to me because as far as I'm concerned with these two movies, he's not a bad director. Uh, Giggly we're going to get into. I think the atmosphere of this movie is very, very strange and I haven't really seen anything as feeling that small, I would say. But, you know, I think we said it when we discussed Meet Joe Black. It's not poorly shot. I would imagine Scent of a Woman and, and or Beverly Hills Cop, you know, that's a great action movie from what I remember. So would you say that you kind of – would you agree with that, that he's a competent filmmaker? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a tough question it's, after, it's, it's, after it's, watching Giggly. The problem, though, is that, like, yeah, on a technical level, he's fine, but he doesn't there's, – there's plot elements 
did he write Meet Joe Black? No. So Meet Joe Black was, uh, well, he might have done some of the screenplay, but it was adapted. It was an adaptation of uh, Death Takes a Holiday. But did he, but a, did he write? But did he write the screenplay? That is a, a good, question. good question. All right. While you look that up, I'll answer the question. Um, okay. A lot of Meet Joe Black's problems is um, problems are is it's there's so many just mind boggling creative choices on a story level. Like we've talked about the peanut butter. Um, a lot of that movie's hitting me right now. Um, the way Brad oh, Pitt gets I hit forgot by the car. about the peanut butter. Oh no. I would prefer some peanut butter. How would you like that, sir? On some kind of toast? Toast? No. Just the butter. Right away, sir. <laughs> just, just the butter. Uh, I don't do it, Joe. Am no. And I am an IRS agent. Oh God. Like like just stuff like that being like really? Like like I get it. That movie came out twenty years ago. But it's like, really? Like, that's what you're going with? And there's no reason why that movie needs to be three hours. Like, there's no yes. reason why. Um, some of these people, again, it's Hollywood. Who knows? It's, it's Hollywood's a giant circle jerk. I think someone like Martin Brest gets further and further removed from the reality of what Hollywood is. A lot of these guys think they're working in a system that they kind of they were ingratiated to, into 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a lot of his problem. That's probably the reason why he's not working anymore is that it's just, he cannot adapt to what the current marketplace and by oh. current, I mean, 2003, 2004, five, six. And I think he probably made his money. He doesn't have to work. And he just, it's a lot of these people that um, the industry that they want to work in doesn't exist anymore. It's just that okay. they, and that's why it was something like Gili, from what I read, was that originally it was going to be like a crime drama. And then the studio, once uh, Yanifer Lopez and uh, uh, Batfleck were attached, said, like, okay, we're making this a rom com. And they essentially kind of perverted this film. So it's another example of is it fair to judge the final product? Probably not because it's not the author's intent. It's like a Tomorrowland. We can't judge this film because it's essentially an incomplete film. It's not the director's intent. If he was, if, um, if Martin Brest was that upset over this, this would be this would be a perfect example of an Alan Smithy. Um, if somebody again, I would no one would blame him for not wanting his name attached to this. But the fact that it is means that he can't be that frustrated with the final outcome of it. Sure. And, and plus there isn't also there's there's an element of it being vindictive it's like you know what if they're gonna meddle with my movie i'm gonna make the worst movie possible mm. if i'm going down i'm gonna bring everybody along with me and i don't want it obviously it didn't permanently ruin uh ben affleck or jennifer lopez's career careers but it, it certainly torpedoed their their box office prospects for a few months because even prior to this jennifer lopez she was i think we've talked about it in in the terminator 3 episode it was uh uh, the wedding planner um all these different or not wedding planner um that yes that was a jennifer lopez film um made in manhattan like Mm -hmm. she was she was kind of at that point a a triple threat she could sing act and dance and this was something that really kind of hurt her movie stardom because it just, I don't think anybody saw it, but it definitely it tarnished it through word of mouth. Yes, absolutely. So Martin Brest only has a director and producer credit on Meet Joe Black. All no, right, so we can't, no writing, we can't, no screenplay. We, we can't directly blame him then for the story, but he, considering that he was a director, he should have done some things to try fix, try to fix it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's culpable, but not directly. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. So I'm glad I'm glad you bring up uh, some of the points that you did in there. You know, I, I think that's that's the next thing to say is that you know can uh, the question is can we you know really blame uh, Gili on Martin Brest? And uh, of course, you know it's been hot button topic these days, and we've been talking about it for a while studio meddling and things like that. Um, from what I found, uh, Gili went uh, to Revolution Studios. And the CEO at the time, and I don't, I don't even know if Revolution still exists, but Joe Roth was the CEO. And uh, I found an interview with him where he said he never wants to work with the Final Cut directors ever again. He ah. wants to have that creative control. And he cites three movies, uh, Geely being one of them, but also Tears of the Sun, which I think is Bruce Willis. Yeah, and that's Hollywood Homicide with Harrison Ford. Oh, my God. Hollywood Homicide. Yeah. Oh, I've oh never seen God. that. I've heard about that, though. And so apparently uh, those were the movies that kind of led Joe Roth to saying he, ne- he never wants to deal with a Final Cut director again. And I was kind of like, well, well, did he meddle with, with Gigli? Because that's what I was kind of reading a lot of. In the Playboy article, it states that even though uh, Martin Brest had final edit on Gigli, Joe, Joe Roth and Revolution were pressuring him for reshoots. And Breast kind of crumbled under the pressure of the studio and on the test screenings. Apparently, oh. this, yeah. And as we know, and as we'll, once we get into the movie and we discuss the Onion article that came out the day the movie came out, it was making, it was satirizing all of the hate leading up to the release of this movie. So I think there was something. It seems like Breast, you know, as you said, Zach, it. He did have uh, someone meddling with him. Uh, he didn't really have that control that I think, as we've you know kind of set up, he really wants from a movie and needs from his movies. So that's kind of the thing. I don't think we can place all the blame on Martin Brest. Um, but to be fair, Geely is Martin Brest's first original screenplay since his studio debut in the 70s with Going yep. in Style. But as Zach said, there was some changes to it when they had the, um, I, I, I didn't remember this, but it was called Benefer back in the day. Yep, ben Affleck yep, and good, Jay Benefer. Good old, yeah, good old Benefer. That, I did not, I, I don't like that, you know, when we have all these, like Brangelina, I remember that one. That was oh, later, yeah, of Brangelina, course, but, yep. but Benefer, I was just like, that, that doesn't even sound good. <laughs> so so this, this movie, I think we can't, you know, it's not all Martin Brest's fault. He's a competent filmmaker on a technical level, like we said. He's made some great stuff, apparently. Great stuff that I'm kind of excited to see. Midnight Run's been talked up from a few sources now. But Gili, you can't, you can't get around it. It's just insanity. Like Zach said, constant insanity. And you bring up the great point of, well, was there some sense of, you know, vindictiveness? And, you know, if you are going to mess with my movie, you know, I'm going to do it in this maybe strange way that you're not expecting. And then just bouncing. Because I agree with you. He probably has his money. He doesn't need to... He can work somewhere in the Hollywood movie business and, you know, um, make a living and, you know, kind of wash all this behind him. Um, I, I do have to say, at the end of the Playboy article, they're interviewing, like, people that have worked for her, for him or with him. And one of them says, he doesn't live in L.A. anymore. He probably moved to New York. And I'm like, probably? Like, <laughs> are you unsure? So no one really knows where Martin Brest is at this point. Hopefully this little, you know, taking uh, Giggly out of the out of the vault and scraping a little sample off to look under a microscope and quickly putting it back in. Maybe this will get him out of the woodworks. Maybe he listens to us, Zach. Maybe we could have him on in a very friendly manner. 
Because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I might not like Meet Joe Black or the second half of Meet Joe Black. I might not like love Giggly in the way that he might want a movie to be loved. But I, I think he's a, he's a great filmmaker, an interesting filmmaker, and I'm glad we get to get to him with this movie. Would you say so? Oh yeah, sure. I, I don't regret watching this. Um, this is one of those films that it really is. It's uh, you don't forget about it once you've watched it. There's just there's nothing quite like it. And I know. I think I I make it a point on this podcast. I talk about how I do research and in places, and I think Rob knows the tone of this film on the internet probably better than even I do. But I listened to a podcast in preparation for this, and all they did was mock it for two hours. Mm. And I'm like, I it, it's such low hanging fruit for mocking. I'm like, yeah. okay. But at the same time, like I kept watching this, and like I said earlier, it's almost like, oh, I can't believe this just happened. And it's like, oh, this isn't like something that ha- was made like in the fifties, where like, oh, times have changed. Of course, there's going to be like different like things that are okay and acceptable. This was made roughly seventeen years ago. Yep. And even though we're nowhere near back then, it was nowhere near as bad now. Politically correct culture. This was a time where that sort of thing was becoming more prevalent. Sure, and the fact that we have such gratuitous use of the word retard, uh, like I'm like, good God, and the fact that again, this is not some little indie film that came out of left field. This is not, this isn't like the closest example I can think to this film is like Freddie got fingered, and yes, it's not as what's the word visually graphic in that sense. It's not as extreme as, as a Tom green film, <laughs> Yeah, but on a, I guess on a script level, on a screenplay level, Tom green's got to look at this and be like, huh, I'm intrigued. Like, this is something that I would love. Like we've, we've talked about before. Like, wouldn't it be fun to watch certain movies with like certain directors and just pick their brain about them? Yep. I would love to watch Gigli with Tom green. Oh my God. And, and I, and I have no idea if Tom green is as weird now as he was then. He's probably, he's God. He's what? Almost what is he's in his forties now. I would imagine. Yeah. So I, he's probably cooled a lot since then, but like, I just love to pick his mind. Be like, what do you think about this? Like, like what's your opinion on a movie like that, like that? And that's the thing with Gigli is that there's nothing quite like it. Like this film, like like Rob said, Martin Brest is more or less in hiding because of this this movie. Mm-hmm. But even though he wants no parts of it, he truly created an inimitable piece of art in the process. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Because you look at other movies, part of his filmography. And yes, there are the things like like uh, Scent of a Woman. Like people will not be talking about that movie 30, 40 years from now. Mm-hmm. But we will be still talking about Gili because it's just like why? How? Uh, yes. I guess it's I guess it's maybe that that saying of it's better to uh rule in hell than to serve in heaven. It's like, like any good piece of art, like an artist, isn't it better to have your work last forever as opposed to something that's accepted in the moment and then forgotten immediately? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this this movie is just it, there's nothing quite like it, and that's gonna be kind of the thing I, that my hallmark in this discussion that it's it it's it exists. And it's one of those movies that that's really the most concise way to describe it. It exists, and there's nothing quite like it. I I would wholeheartedly agree, <laughs> and it, it's kind of you know like like we said, he's kind of gone in hiding, and this seems to be the reason for it. And it, it's interesting that really everyone else who was involved in this movie, at least. The cast is what I'm thinking of. They all were able to rebound to to some extent. Um, you know, Al Pacino and Christopher Walken, they were untouchable before this. 
So, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, they, they made a bad movie. I'm sure they've made other bad movies before. But uh, Jennifer Lopez, you know, she's she's still around. She's in she was what in that movie Hustler or something that came out last year. I was hearing about and apparently she was good in that. Um, I did find that she in response to this movie, she was in a very dark place and uh, she was questioning her her place in Hollywood. If she even, even belonged in movies and things like that. Ben Affleck, as we know, is, you know, maybe he took a little dip after this, but he, he's back in full force. Um, I loved one of his quotes. He described uh, Giggly as putting a fish's tail on a donkey's head. I don't know if I would I, I don't know if I would have thought of that. I haven't thought of that from seeing this movie, but I do love that quote. But while we're on Ben Affleck, before we get to him in this movie, something that I was absolutely blown away to, to find out about is that when Ben when when Ben Affleck, um, George Clooney and what's it Her- Hertzlov or something like that, the three producers um, well, and Ben Affleck, of course, you know, uh, the director, I believe, when Argo won Best Picture, they all got on stage and they gave their, their, uh, their speech. When Ben Affleck got up, he starts by saying, okay, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to go through this quick. And one of the people he thanks is Marty Brest. I want to thank, you know, I mean, uh, Jack McNeese and, 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 and Jerry Specker and Marty Brest and my brother and my mom and dad and... So Ben Affleck clearly has some, uh, uh, you know, affection for Martin Brest. Uh, of course, Giggly was the only movie I think that Ben Affleck was in. But I was kind of blown away to say, like, okay, you know, there's there was no bad blood there, I guess. Or maybe Ben Affleck is like, you know, you showed me my lowest point, so now I can reach my highest point type of thing. But that that's very intriguing to me that you know, <clears throat> he got a name drop, you know, when Argo came out. I would imagine when he mentioned Brest's name, it was more on a directorial level, like teaching him how to do things. Mm, oh, I, I, point. I read something that a couple of times Brest let Affleck film certain scenes. Oh, okay. I, I have no idea if that's true. I heard that in a couple of places. Take that with a massive grain of salt. So I could see that maybe Martin Brest being the person that led Affleck on his directorial career. Mm. Um, I, I do want on the record real quick. I don't think we mentioned it in the um, Ben Affleck's birthday episode of Justice League. That I find him a horrible actor. Like I just want on the record, I think he's a horrible <laughs> actor, and I think he's a mediocre director at best. Like I, everybody should know this. The only reason why he won Best Picture for Argo was that the industry rallied around him when he got snubbed for best a nomination for Best Director. That's the only oh, reason okay. why he won. Everybody forgets that in the fall of 2012, spring of 2013, the industry felt sorry because it was like, oh, how can you do this to him? Because I think right right before then he finally uh, he kind of like what he qu- he wasn't an alcoholic anymore. Mm-hmm. He was really trying to like reforge his image in Hollywood. He was no longer a pretty boy, and and I know now he has a lot of problems. I know he's in rehab a lot, but that's the again I've never understood the affection for Ben Affleck. I've never and I get it. He's part of that thing in the '90s with Matt Damon, yeah, and, Ke- and Kevin Smith. They're part of that like weird '90s like. Uh, uh, oh god renaissance of, of cinema And that's fine Nothing. I don't wish anything Ill against the man But I've never understood giving him a claim Like I think Argo is a mediocre film I remember I saw that oh, in yeah. theaters uh, I remember somebody else wanted to go It was only very few times I didn't want to see a movie And I wanted to see it because somebody else wanted to I remember just sitting there and it's like there's no tension in this movie I know what's going to happen Like just how he, everything's plotting There's no mystery Everything Unfolds the way it's supposed to There's no twist or turns behind, like beforehand I can still remember sitting in the theater and you have the um, 
oh god, I forget the official terms, the the Iranian National Guard or whatever they're called yeah. there. And it's like, oh, are they gonna catch the Canadians? Are they gonna catch the Americans? And I'm like, no. Like, I don't even know. I, I didn't even know the story. I'm just like, I can tell you, they're not going to catch the base and everything else we've seen in this film. We haven't had any shocks of violence. They're like, oh, anything can happen. Usually, when you have like suspense, you need something in, in the like about 20 minutes prior to that suspenseful moment to make the audience question, like, oh, some things can come out of nowhere, and nothing like that happens. And I'm like, no, he doesn't deserve an Oscar because you pity him. Like, I com- agree completely. Yeah, everybody gets. I know because the year prior to that. The artist won, and people to this day are still mad at the artist won. And that was the black and white silent film with, uh, oh God, what's his name? Uh, oh God, Jardine, John oh, Jardine. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm butchering his name, but I remember everybody got mad about that. Like, oh, this is such a pretentious Oscar, Oscar bait film. I'm like, but at least they tried something different. They released a black and white silent film in 2011, and it worked. They didn't release a paint by numbers thriller that you can see coming from a mile away. Like at least they tried something different. It wasn't, and, I, and that's why I never understood. And even like with other Ben Affleck stuff, like The Town, I think is boring. It's generic crime thriller. Uh, Gone Baby Gone, generic crime thriller. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like even like I'm glad. I don't mean. Oh god, that sounds horrible. But even some of like I think the last film Ben Affleck directed was the one where it's like him in the Bayou and he's like the detective or the the sleuth, and that cost like a hundred million dollars and that bombed. I'm like finally. People are realizing that this guy isn't particularly – again, he's not that he's not competent. It's, he's just not very good. It's just it's, – it's serviceable entertainment. There's better people out there that deserve their projects to be filmed, and he shouldn't just get it because his name is Ben Affleck. Uh, even the people that want him as Batman. It's like he was like, – again, he was a decent Batman. Um, but again, oh, I, I – Live, live by night. How could we forget that? I watched that as well when we were finding Ben. He directed that. that, that yeah, that was that was him. This the him. This what the private eye by the Bayou, right? Uh, no, that's. Uh, I think he's a he's a gangster in that one, and he's uh, well, got to do like one last job or something. It might have been Bayou, in the Bayou. It, 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 it might have been. A, okay, it's something in the Ben Affleck was in the Bayou at some point in his career. We'll figure out <laughs> later in the episode. We'll figure out what movie it was. The only thing I remember about that movie is that Ben Affleck gives the opening monologue where he's like. It's 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 a very long-winded way to say that he wants to do like he wants to make so much money from one job that him and his girlfriend can just sleep all day and then like live by night. Yeah, and I go, yep, yep, and I go the word you're looking for is nocturnal. Why are you using a different word than nocturnal? And then I don't remember anything else about that movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the point. The fact that somebody gave him $100 million to make that movie. There's at least another film out there that could have gotten made that could, I would imagine was definitely better. And the only reason why it didn't happen was because of his name. Yes, yes. That's, and that's the thing. Even going into this movie, like I have no problem with like, – I think, I think for the most part, yes – the actors are all dialing it up to 11 because they're being told to. Like this is a movie that I don't blame the actors. They're doing they're doing exactly what they're told. Nobody here is improvising or being told like, "Oh, do this, act zany." They're I, I'm sorry, they are being told that. They're not nobody's kind of like making up as they go along from the uh, ingenue perspective. Sure. And that's why like even Ben Affleck in this, like I think Jennifer Lopez considering that she's given such a bizarre role, she does a decent job. Like I kind of found her believable as a uh, as a what criminal enforcer that's also a lesbian that's that's mm-hmm. uncharacteristic uh, uncharacteristically beautiful for that sort of vocation. Yeah. I bought her as that character, okay. and then you see Ben Affleck and he's a meathead, and then you realize <laughs> at this point in his career 
That's what he's played in every single movie. He's just a pretty meathead. Mm-hmm. Like he's that in Pearl Harbor. He's that in the uh, paycheck. He's a pretty meathead. And I'm like, oh, like again, I can't blame him for that because that's clearly his wheelhouse. Even even in Argo, he looks constipated. Like I know he's the main character <laughs> yeah. in that, but it's like he doesn't do anything. He just has this dumb look on his face for the entire movie. And I'm like, that's fine. Like I don't blame him for that though. But don't don't give him credit for something when he doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the thing with this movie. So I, this is a movie that feels like first and foremost that was made of a bunch of pieces like we've said with anything whether it be tomorrowland or even we talked about star wars on the star wars podcast recently it's the idea that, like just this feels like a bunch of different movies shoved together and then when it is cohesive it's just a jarring nightmare of a film oh oh yeah oh yeah so on uh, i do have to say also i agree with a lot of what you said i'm not the biggest ben affleck fan either um if if everybody knows or if you don't know uh Everybody knows when Ben Affleck's birthday is, August 15th. <laughs> they also know who else shares that birthday. My great-grandmother. <laughs> and me. But that's beside the point. Uh, Argo is a very boring movie. I remember I saw that as well. Not in theaters, but it's very boring. Uh, it should be said that the climax is government officials looking at documents. <laughs> yep, yep. And it's also a big lie. It completely snubs the fact that that entire real-life mission was... Uh, set up and carried out by Canada. And I also found it very funny in the speech when uh, Argo won Best Picture. Ben Affleck thanks Canada. <laughs> oh, does he? Yeah, he says, he's like, thank you. He, like, lists off people's names, and he's like, I want to thank, uh, you know, Canada. And he's like, uh, he's like, all the people living in Iran that uh, are living in terrible conditions. And then he's like, and then my wife, who I don't associate with Iran. And then he talks about his wife for the rest of the oh, time. Oh, I, I remember that. I remember ever watching that, yeah. I want to thank Canada. I want to thank our, our, our friends in, uh, in Iran living in, 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 in terrible circumstances right now. I want to thank my wife, who I don't normally associate with Iran, but... Um... <laughs> oh, yeah. you still married to Jennifer Garner. Yep, yep. It cuts to Jennifer Garner and it shows her, like, tearing up for so long as he's just rambling on about nothing. And I'm like, okay, you said Marty Brass. That's all I care about. <laughs> yeah, I, remember, I, I watched that. Cause that's why I still cared about the Oscars. Yeah, I remember watching that in real time. Yeah, that oh wow, okay. Yeah, that's a that's a weird one for sure. Yeah. All right. So so we're not blaming Geely completely on Martin Brest. Uh we we love you, Martin Brest. We want to talk to you. Oh, oh, speaking of birthdays. Oh dear. Martin Brest's birthday. You ready for this, Zach? Okay. August eighth, a week before Ben Affleck. Close. <laughs> It's close. I was very so surprised to see how close it was, but it is a week, so that's pretty interesting. And he was also born in the Bronx, which is where I was born, so rep. Uh, all right. <laughs> um, I think before we get into into, into Geely, Giggly, uh, we have to talk about it flopping, of course. As everybody knows, this is content-wise a very, very disliked and, and you know uh, offensive movie, as we've said. But Zach mentioned it before. This cost about $75 million, and from what I found, about $25 million of that went to just Benefer, which is, you know, I, I don't know for 2003 if that was a common thing, but, you know, that's that's a lot of it. That's a, a third of the budget going to the two leads. I can't imagine how much Pacino and, and Walken got, but uh, according to what I found, this movie made $7 million in its theatrical release. 
that's, that's something else, man. That like every usually, I think people can kind of get out the way we talk to each other. And I know uh, definitely on earlier episodes of Cinemodities, you will say this exact same thing to me. You'll give me a budget. You'll give me how much it made, and I'm always kind of like waiting for you to tell me if it's a good thing or a bad thing. This one, there's no, there's no denying. No, seven yeah. million versus seventy-five million. It made nothing. And then, from what else I found, the marketing was pulled for this movie after opening weekend. I think the only other time we've heard of that was what was it the Fern Gully in the um, the Disney documentary watched where what Katzenberg was like <laughs> pull the pull the marketing. It's not going to work, right? Was that it? Was it Fern Gully? Uh, I, I liked it. You're a knee jerk. I, you know what? He's wrong here, folks, but we're going to use that from now on. Anytime we can't think of an animated film, it's just Fern Gully. Oh, what? <laughs> what from now it? on, I, I kind of don't want to ruin it by oh, correcting okay. you. It's Fern Gully. But it's not, it's not Fern Gully, but just for the sake of arguing. Like, that's what it is. Anytime there's, a, there's an animated film that you can't think of, you just call it Fern Gully. Perfect. <laughs> okay. you, you, know the, you know that movie series with the toys that can talk that Kate starred in the 90s, Fern Gully? <laughs> yeah, Fern Gully. <laughs> Oh, but so yes. it's perfect. If you don't know the if you don't know the actor or the actress, you say B. Arthur, right? Yes, and if, B, if you don't know B. Arthur. If you don't know the animated film, you say Fern Gully. <laughs> now that's a deep cut reference, folks. I think that's a reference that even nobody on cinema that's a reference that's never been made on the podcast before, yet somehow it's incredibly spot on. Uh, we're giving too much away. I think every all you, our fans know that know we only talk to each other on recording. <laughs> do you know what what that is from? Can you point the exact moment where, if you don't know what an actor's name is, to be Arthur? Can you point to the very specific thing that comes from? That's not even that's not available online that, anymore. I don't. Yeah, I don't think I can. I think the I'm remembering it from one of the times I heard you say it. <laughs> okay, okay. I have to get the context of this because maybe someone can find yes, this for me. I'm ready. Um. Red Letter Media back in 2005 had a video called the United States of No. And it was really their like a really primitive step for them in just lambasting the Star Wars prequels. Okay. And at one point, it's not like a 15 minute long video and they go around and they're talking to people about the movie. I think it just came out maybe that month. And one of the women, they're talking to some like older woman. She has to be at least in her, in her late fifties, early sixties. And she's like that actress, that actress, you know, and Mike Saklasa goes, be Arthur. And she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so and, and ever since then, anytime someone's trying to think of an actor's name, they can't think of it. My knee jerk reaction is be Arthur. Be you Arthur. always say that if somebody's like, oh, what's that actor called? They're in, they're in the so-and-so movie. Be Arthur. No, you always have, <laughs> always have to say be Arthur. And now we're going to add to that. If you can't think of an animated film, when you're talking about it in discussion, you just say Fern Gully. Perfect. I like it. Okay, yeah, I would not have remembered Red Letter Media. I was going to guess something with a holiday special, Star Wars but, holiday special. But the thing about that Red Letter Media video, because I remember at some point I was trying to find that. I guess another call to action to the audience. Red Letter Media deleted that video. You can't find it anywhere. I've gone everywhere searching for it. I've gone to like subreddits everywhere, hoping that somebody had saved it. And I was devastated that I could not find it because I loved it. I remember Sal and I used to watch that a lot. And then, oddly enough, I don't know what I was doing at some point freshman year of college, but I have an MP3 rip of it. So I have. So if I can find that moment listening to it, I will insert it here. But I have the MP3, but I don't have the actual video. <laughs> we take what we can get. <laughs> Cheap beer is good. Really, my favorite uh, movie is Harold and Maude. What? What the hell is that? You never seen Harold and Maude? Oh my god. 
Have you ever seen Harold and Maude? Well, who's in Harold and Maude? Um, that old lady that used to be with the Clint Eastwood thing. B. Arthur? No, 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 no. Clint Eastwood? Do you want me to get up and hit you? Absolutely not. Strangest thing that that video doesn't exist anymore, considering how popular Red Letter Media is now, but... Another oddity in the uh, Gili oh, yeah. episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're we're pulling out all the stops on this one, Epi- and it's not even our hundredth episode. <laughs> That's next week, folks. Woo! So yes. Yeah, so seven million on a seventy-five million dollar budget. Uh, marketing gets pulled after opening weekend, and I also found that the movie gets pulled from theaters after three weeks. Now I didn't look into. Um, if this holds a record for how quickly something got pulled from theaters, I'm sure there's stuff that gets pulled all the time in quick succession because, you know, it drops off or whatever. But, uh, Zach, do you know is, is three weeks is short? Is this kind of um, surprisingly – well, not surprisingly short. Is this unusually short? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Like any film, you want it to play as long as humanly possible. Sure. And what happens is that the um, the theaters stop booking it. Um, what happens uh, is too okay. is that it's not just simply pulled. Like no studio pulls the film unless there's some sort of controversy. What happens is that again, theaters stop booking it, and eventually the studio, to save face, stops reporting on it. And that's mm-hmm. what happened. Like the only examples I can think of in recent memory, off the top of my head, of this was the Gem in the Holograms film from a couple of years ago, where it was like I think it lasted like maybe two, three weeks, and it was just it, it died such a horrible death. They pulled it. Almost immediately, and by pull, it's just they stop reporting on the numbers. Okay, it still it still exists, like in uh, discount chains, second run theaters. They, they try to the get South every, Hills every, Mall <laughs> if it, if it was still running the South Hills Mall. <laughs> but yes, those tor- those type of theaters. And the only other example I can think of was something like uh, MacGruber. Like MacGruber stopped like getting. If you look on bo- well on the old box office mojo before they reformatted it, mm-hmm. it, it said something like it was in release only for three weeks, and that's not true because Rob and I have like a ticket stub from like what. The end of from what the end of June, early July. Yeah. So we have proof that that's not the case, and that's what usually happens. The studio stops reporting on it publicly to save face. Oh, okay, okay. But but usually it doesn't last that much longer. So if if it was quote unquote pulled within three weeks, it maybe got another two weeks, three tops, which is is just far from ideal from a film that for a film that costs seventy five million dollars and stars two of the biggest superstars on the face of the earth. Yeah, and with cameos with Pacino and Walken, like, geez. It, th- this movie had stuff going, well, I guess it had uh, some stuff going for it other than the screenplay and the script. <laughs> well, that's what it is. It's a movie that had everything going for itself on paper. It's, yeah. it's a movie that on paper, it's like, okay, got two of the biggest stars on the face of the earth that are in a relationship. It's like a, it's it's weird that like a couple of years later, you had the exact same thing with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brangelina. Oh. And, that, and that absolutely took off. And that's another film too that had a very troubled production. Any, um, I think that's okay, Rob. You're the one who's fact checking right now. Find out who directed Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I because, never saw that. Is that yeah, a good, it's good. thing? Yeah, it's oh, solid. okay. That's a solid film. No, I don't. I, I would imagine yeah, Rob probably won't like it. Cause it's a very conventional film. Um, but for 2005, it's cute. It, you, it's a perfect date movie fodder film and something to watch on a Sunday afternoon on TNT. Directed by Doug. Doug Lyman. Lyman. That, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, Doug Lyman is one of those uh, directors that no matter what movie he's involved with, he causes problems with it. Okay. I don't think there's ever been a Doug Lyman film or a production of his that's gone smoothly. He did The Born Identity, which had production mm-hmm. problems. Mr. and Mrs. Smith had production problems. Oh, he did Jumper. He did, 
he did Jumper, which had production problems. He did, <laughs> yeah. Edge of, he did Edge of Tomorrow, which to this day they're still trying to rename that film or rebrand it. Is a live die repeat. Uh, but yeah, it's funny. Every <laughs> Doug Flyman's a very competent filmmaker. Like he's one of these ones that always has problems during productions. Yet the final product is usually good, if not great. Um, but yeah, now Mr. And Mrs. Smith is another one that's very mm. similar to Gili in the sense that like you have some of the two of the biggest superstars on the face face of the earth that are dating a very anticipated project. But at the same time, though, everybody liked Angelina and Brad going into that. Ben yeah. Affleck was again comes across as at that point came across as a meathead. And J-Lo just came across as a pop princess. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't that sort of, oh man. Like, and plus, Mr. and Smith is, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith had a very interesting premise. Like, what would happen if a husband and wife duo in a loveless marriage found out they were competing assassins? And what would happen one day if they found out? That's, that's a very interesting premise. That is a uh, high concept idea. And okay. it worked. It, it, it translates quite well to the screen. It has, it's a satisfying movie. I can't imagine anybody watching that and being disappointed by it. Oh, Even right. you, Rob. You'd watch it and be like, that was fine. It's not my favorite film, but I wasn't angry or disappointed by it. Um, and this is, and again, it's it's weirdly enough, it's the antithesis to Gigli in that sense, where <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith is cute, but it's more or less disposable. Gigli, after you watch it, you'll never forget it. Yeah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay, so we have mentioned uh, the main actors, I think, J-Lo and uh, Benifer. They they came out of this unscathed for the most part. Um, we mentioned Pacino and Walken. I think we finally have to get to the elephant in the room. Uh, you already said it, the R word. One of our main characters is a mentally challenged person, severely, I would say. Uh, he's functioning, but you know he needs a lot of a lot of care from from Benifer in this movie. Ricky and 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 Giggly himself. He's played by a non mentally challenged person, which I know is not considered <coughs> PC these days. Which you know they don't want that. Um, but uh, is played by Justin Bartha, who uh, I only know him as Doug, the guy on who they're looking for in The Hangover. So he kind of rebounded with those. Movies, excuse, right? excuse me, Rob. The guy they're looking for in the hangovers. Hangover. Oh, that's right. I, I was trying to forget that two and three existed. Two is, is the he, same movie as the first film. Yeah, is he missing and the third, the third film? Third is a snuff film. The third one's just a snuff film. I think okay. they killed Zach Galifianakis halfway through. <laughs> yeah, isn't the third one like a crime? Like they got to break into someone's house for Ken Jeong and steal gold bars or something? I've never seen that. All I know is that Todd Phillips was so fed up with that series, and he's like, you know, a very, I would imagine a very similar thing to Lee with Martin Bress. Was like, you know what? They want a third one. I'm going to give them a third one. Okay, and it was that. Oh yeah, that's they'll they'll never be a a. Fast, a, a, such a fascinating tale of a series going up and then crashing down the earth as the Hangover trilogy. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and then it all leads to Todd Phillips making the Joker movie. <laughs> <sighs> so, uh, so we have Justin Bartha who uh, recovers to some extent, at least with that franchise. And then the the only other one we have, seriously, I think that's the other thing. This is a very small cast in this movie. Uh, is the mob boss, the guy that hires uh, J-Lo and Ben Affleck, whose name is Lewis. He's played by Lenny Venito. I only know him from, of course, Zach is going to like this, a few <sighs> random small roles in, in Law & Order franchise. But he was also one of the main characters in the short-run TV show The Knights of Prosperity. Do you remember this show, Zach? No, Rob, I don't. Okay, The Knights of Prosperity got, like, what, 13 episodes, I think one season. 
Um, it was Donald Logue was the main dude, but uh, Louis, Louis, Lenny Venito was in it. And the premise of the show was these guys who live in Manhattan were fed up with being like working class. So they decide they're going to rob Mick Jagger's apartment. Oh, that is seriously the plot of that show. And I remember this because I watched it like when it aired with my dad. And I think we watched like the first three episodes and we were like, this is not good in the slightest. <laughs> oh, really? I think with a premise like that, at least it'd be, in- it'd be goofy yeah. interesting. I-, I think that's why we watched it. And it just kind of like got, it got a little, um, you know, it was very sitcom-y. I think it was like a Fox or one oh, of those basic okay. cable shows. And so it was a, it was a half hour with commercial type of thing. Um, I only remember the premise. And for some reason, uh, maybe it was because I was younger when it came out, and so it was a formative part of a uh, time in my life. There's a scene where two of the Knights of Prosperity, by the way, that's the name of the show and what they name themselves, because they're they're trying to be like Robin Hood or something and steal from the rich and give to themselves, the poor. Is they're like two dudes are sitting at a stakeout, like watching Mick Jagger's apartment or like the apartment building he lives in, and they start talking, and like one guy's like, "What's the most beautiful part of a woman?" And the dude in the passenger seat is like, I don't know, the legs? And the guy comes back with the vagina, like just very crassly. He just screams that and they're on, while they're on the stakeout. And that's it. That's all I remember about this show. You got a lady friend? What? You know, a girl. Kissy, kissy. Uh, nah, not right now. I've been divorced four times. You know why? I love the women too much. They're life's most beautiful mystery. You know what is my favorite part of a woman? Her legs? No. Breasts? No. Oh. Her mind. The vagina. I love it! <laughs> Rob, was Martin Breast maybe a writer for that show based on okay. some of the dialogue in this film? <laughs> uh, he's not credited, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> he's a script, do- unofficial script doctor on that show. Yeah, consultant. <laughs> Oh, geez. So that that's it. I think we've got all the cast. Of course, we got minor characters here and there, like a confused doctor man in the hospital, um, woman at the at the post office place that Jennifer Lopez stares at, uh, things of that nature. But before we get into the the plot, I did want to tell or bring up something Zach said, where this movie got kind of retooled to some extent with the addition of Benefer, you know, that making it that rom-com type of thing. Uh, a lot of sources I found said that in Breast's kind of first version of this script and screenplay, uh, Giggly was supposed to die in the end. Like, the movie was supposed to end with him bleeding out, getting shot, guess where? At the Baywatch, after he drops Brian. Really? Yes. I dug a little deeper, because I was like, oh my god, I, I need to know more about how this movie was supposed to go. And I only found one article that gave a little bit more details um, so, you know, once again, who knows, take this with a grain of salt, but apparently Breast's earlier versions had, of course, Giggly getting shot and dying in the end, but it also had the reveals that Christopher Walken's detective character was actually a crooked cop working for Pacino, and it also had the reveal that J-Lo's suicidal girlfriend, oh, I guess she's kind of the cast of this, in the cast of this, We'll, we'll get there, don't worry, the, the wrist-slitting scene. J-Lo's suicidal girlfriend was the real hit woman that Lewis hired, and J-Lo was just like a cover to distract Giggly. But of course this doesn't make sense because we need more. Like, why would anybody want to distract Giggly? He got hired for this job. So clearly this movie got retooled hardcore from yeah. 
breast first version to what we get in this rom-com because that's what it is. It's it's a, supposed to be a romantic comedy where most of the comedy comes from Ben Affleck yelling at a mentally challenged person. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Like I said folks, this is going to be his this is his episode. I had mine last week with Full Throttle. <laughs> this is this is a Rob episode with a capital R. Giggly. So so yes, I, I would really love once again, Martin Brest, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to see some some early versions of this. Maybe it could have had something, you know, that was going for it. Because I guess I, I should say going in style, his first studio film and his first original screenplay, that was like a, a crime kind of drama. Uh, it was about three old men, one of who is Art Carney, and they decide that they're going to rob a bank. And they basically say it's a win-win situation because if we get away with it, we have a bunch of money. And if we get caught, we get free accommodations in jail. That was the premise of that movie. And it's about three old men trying to rob a bank. And I'm like, okay, that you know clearly got some notoriety and it got him into these bigger movies like War Games and, and then Beverly Hills Cop. And so you know he clearly has some of that crime caper there. And I would have loved to see more of it because this movie is only crime-related you know, on the bare minimum surface level it's like you forget that there's a crime or you know this kind of blackmail situation they're doing for most of the movie right yeah for the most part because uh, the movie okay i guess we have to get into the plot now the movie starts with uh giggly works for lewis and lewis's friend from new york al pacino is having some legal troubles so lewis sends giggly to kidnap the prosecutor's brother to try and blackmail the prosecutor into dropping the charges. That's how the movie starts. Jennifer Lopez shows up as another person hired by Lewis to make sure Giggly gets the job done and the job gets done right. But then the movie turns into Ben Affleck trying to convince J-Lo not to be a lesbian. That's the bulk of this movie. (laughs) And it's so strange. That's why I forget there's any crime thing going on until Al Pacino shows up at the near the end, and it's it's just I, and so one of my the first time I saw it every time I saw this, I was thinking is this Ben Affleck's kind of other side of the coin from Chasing Amy because I don't know if Zach's ever seen Chasing Amy the Kevin Smith film that's also what that movie is about Ben Affleck falls in love with a lesbian and tries to convince her not to be a lesbian but it ends with him not succeeding they both kind of end on good terms and she keeps being a lesbian this is probably wildly insensitive and ben affleck kind of comes to terms with that but at this movie he wins he convinces angela <laughs> i still have mr and mrs smith up i was about to say angelina Jolie. and he convinces jennifer lopez to run away with him and not be a lesbian and it's so strange that that's the romantic comedy part of this movie and uh, this is what I think baffles me the most about it. Of course, you know, there's the nitty-ditty, nitty-gritty details and the scenes and the lines and, and Christopher Walken's one scene, which is the most ridiculous thing I think I've seen in a while. But on its surface level, that's what the movie's about. Ben Affleck finding love with a lesbian. What is this? It's insanity. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, there's, there's so much to, to delve into with this movie. I... Uh, I... Uh, I don't know where to begin. Like you didn't even talk about the fact that we again, like we kind of hinted at so far about the mentally handicapped character that all Ben Affleck does is yell at all the like kind of like bizarre sequences, like you said, him trying to convince her 
that being heterosexual is better. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Walken, the the Baywatch, just the the dialogue. Like, I, in all honesty, I know, like in previous episodes of Cinemonies, I've wanted to break down every scene. I think maybe one day, Rob, maybe Rob and I will maybe do this. We'll actually redo. The, we'll read the entire script to Gili. Ooh. We'll actually put together a cast of characters and we will do every scene. We'll do like a live, <laughs> we'll do a podcast production of Gili. Oh my God. Because I think, in all honesty, I, I don't know how to talk about this movie and do it justice. Because I think we, again, we'd be playing, like, I don't even think you could play clips. I think clips don't give the movie its essence. It's just that script. Because some of the mm-hmm. stuff is just like, how on earth did any, how could they, I, a couple times on, like when Ben Affleck is doing his thing, when uh, Jennifer Lopez is doing her uh, sexy yoga in the moonlight, and he's okay. saying some things, and I'm like, how can anybody on the face of this earth say this dialogue with a straight face? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So, I yeah, we're, we're talking about the whole convincing lesbians to not be lesbians thing. That scene is where it kind of, you know, really comes to to uh, the full front of the movie where she's doing yoga, sexy yoga in almost no clothes. And uh, I think one of my notes is definitely like Jennifer Lopez talking about dicks, vaginas, mouths and kissing and while doing sexy yoga in no almost no clothing. This should be boner inducing, but it's just weird in this movie as far as I'm concerned. Like with everything in this movie, it's just like almost a little bit of ickiness, I would say. So I'm not your type, huh? How do we get back there all of a sudden? Relax. I'm more women than I know what to do with. I don't need to be dipping into the sisterhood. But I'm just curious. There's all of a sudden now, you say you've been with guys. I have. But they have their uh, shortcomings? Well, besides the fact that they give terrible head, See, right there, that tells me something. I know the guys you've been with obviously didn't know how to, uh, how to bring home the pearls when they were diving for oysters. I was actually just joking. Uh, well, we're letting it all hang out now. Let me tell you something else, okay? When it comes to pleasing a woman, your girlfriends, they're just, they're at a natural disadvantage. It's like they might try hard, but they're just not backed up. Millions of years of genetic engineering, programming, instinct. Nature has evolved man for that purpose. Satisfy. Lead the pack. That's why these lesbians are always going out by, you know, spending all their dough on, like, you know, sexual appliances, erotic monkey wrenches and shit, trying to compensate for what they don't have. They're not getting penis. That's right. It's very design. Tells you everything you need to know. Forward motion. Of advancement. Fucking progress. Into the dark, deep, mysterious, unknown. It's like adventure-seeking, frontier-conquering, obstacle-eradicating. Wow. And you tried to create the impression you didn't read books. Settling for second best, that's all I'm saying. So, in review, you're saying that it's men that are at the top of the must-fuck pyramid. That's all I'm telling you. Hmm? Loving, 
caring, sensitive, giving men. That's right. Well, you're entitled to your opinion. But let us reconsider women for a minute, shall we? Sure. Their form, neck, shoulders, legs, hips. I think pretty cool. Now, as far as your famous penis goes, the penis is like some sort of bizarre sea slug or like a really long toe. I mean, it's handy, important even, but the pinnacle of sexual design, the top of the list of erotic destinations, I don't think so. One's first impulse is to kiss. What? To kiss the lips. Firm, delicious lips, sweet lips. Surrounding a warm, moist, dizzyingly scented mouth. That's what everyone wants to kiss. Not a toe, not a sea slug, a mouth. And why do you think that is, stupid? Because the mouth is the twin sister, the almost exact look-alike of the what? Not the toe. The mouth is the twin sister of the vagina. And all creatures big and small seek the orifice, the opening to, to, to be taken in, engulfed, to be squeezed and lovingly crushed by what is truly the all-powerful, all-encompassing. Now, if it's design you're concerned with, hidden meanings, symbolism, and power, oh, forget the top of Mount Everest, forget the bottom of the sea, the moon, the stars, there is no place, nowhere that has been the object of more ambitions, more battles, than the sweet, sacred mystery between a woman's legs that I am proud to call my pussy. So I guess this is just my roundabout way of saying that it is women who are in fact the most desirable form. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. And so do I. And like you said, Ben Affleck is like, ah, what are you doing with women? I have a penis. I have the best penis. It's the best sex organ. Everybody loves the penis. And I'm like, what am I watching? <laughs> is this the intro to a porn? <laughs> well, that's the, okay, that's the thing about this, though. There's something, okay, because this is the part where I want to talk a little bit about Roger Ebert's review of this. Because he okay. reviewed it when it came out in the summer of 2003. And I was kind of like, when I, I know on IMDb now, there's like a button you can click and they have like all the critics reviews from both like current and uh, back in its initial release. And I'm like, okay, I'm kind of curious what Ebert would have to say about this. Cause he really, he really had a unique, again, there's really nobody else like Roger Ebert when it comes to film criticism and him not being around anymore really is a great loss for getting like an objective opinion on certain movies. Mm -hmm. Cause a lot of what's available now for Gigli is just people mocking it because it's it's very easy to do that. 
Yes. So, but reading his review of Gili, he brought some. It's it's interesting. He gave the film two and a half stars, which is about middle of the road. I think he usually ranked films on a scale of maybe four. I think, I think it was four, four stars. Yeah, four stars was was, was his thing. Uh, when he gave up the thumbs up, thumbs down thing after, well, he still did that with uh, Richard Roper, but on his website, he didn't he didn't have mm-hmm. that gimmick. Um, but at one point in the review, and I've got to find this. Uh, he he talks about like the chemistry between the two of them. He's like, when I walked into this, a lot of people were were hating on Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, which you should point out. Like when this movie opened up, uh, people were sick and tired of of Benifer. Mm-hmm. It was very much one of those things that just nobody wanted to hear it anymore. So there was this public animosity toward them as a couple. Sure. So even if this film wasn't a train wreck, I think a lot of this never this never was going to make money. Because it just it felt more like just a gimmick film than an actual movie with a plot. And he mentions that like when I walked into this film, I was expecting no chemistry. And he goes, They do have chemistry, but there's really no weight to anything that they're doing. Yes. They they work well together, but there's no there's no substance to any of it. And then he starts to mention a part the, the thing that Rob's been mentioning, the, like called the, the 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 moonlight yoga sequence. Mm-hmm. And I've got to find it. He goes, um, okay, where is it? Okay, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are in love and plan to get married. As you already know, unless you are sealed off from all media, in which case you are not reading this review, so put it down, because they are a famous couple starring in a movie romance. We expect something conventional and predictable, and that's not what we get from Gigli. The movie tries to do something different, thoughtful, and a little daring with their relationship. And although it doesn't quite work, maybe the movie is worth seeing for some scenes that are really very good. Considering the matching monologues, they've gotten into an argument over the necessity of the penis, which she, as a lesbian, feels is an inferior device for delivering sexual pleasure. He delivers an extended lecture on the use, necessity, and perfect design of the appendage. It is a rather amazing speech, the sort of thing some moviegoers are probably going to want to memorize. Then she responds. She is backlit, dressed in a skin-tight workout clothes, doing yoga, and she continues to stretch and extend and bend and pose as she responds with her speech in praise of the vagina. When she is finished, reader, the vagina has won hands down. It is so rare to find dialogue of such originality and wit and so well-written that even though we know the exchange basically involves actors showing off, they do it so well we let them. Mm. That's that's the sort of thing only Roger Ebert could find in a movie like this. Yeah, that's I would I did not expect that at all. That, that is profound analysis and interpretation of this film. Yeah. And I think even I think we've mentioned it before when it came to things like Freddie Got Fingered and Roger Ebert. Like Roger Ebert like hated that film so much. And I think it was about a year later he uh Tom Green did the film with oh god, what's his name? Jason Lee, where it was like some stupid like college boner road trip movie. I think it was and, called Road Trip. <laughs> no, that no, it? was oh, no, oh that was Brecken Meyer, right? I have no idea what it was. I I okay. think I think it's Jason Lee. I could be wrong though. It's somebody who looks like Jason Lee. Hey kids. The movie we were trying to think of was Stealing Harvard. And Ebert says something in his review of that. He's like, as much as I complained about Freddie Got Fingered at the time, it's truly a surreal masterpiece in retrospect. Like, it's horrible, but there's nothing quite like it. And I think that's the same train of thought that Roger Ebert had was that to, to today's cynical audiences, everybody looks at this and goes, "Can you? Oh man, they're talking about this. This is so crazy." It's that rocket raccoon dilemma of this is yeah. crazy. It, it's that analysis that everybody's been conditioned to that anything that's not straightforward, we have to lampoon and be like, "Oh, that ha 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 ha." 
say we have to guffaw at it because we just we we've been conditioned by Marvel and Hollywood now not to look at things that are odd and appreciate them. We've been conditioned mm. to laugh at things that are odd. And I think that that sort of analysis of that sequence, because as I was watching it, I was dumbfounded, not because well, obviously for the reasons like I can't believe this exists, but just because it it works. Like as I was watching it, and J Lo's going through her little rebuttal again. I still think Ben Affleck's a meathead. Um, I, I, yeah. I, he's doing he's doing his shtick, and that's fine. Again, he has his shtick, and he does it well. But when she's having her rebuttal and how she's shot, how she's moving, we see her legs moving, and of course, this is the part where I'm pretty certain wasn't Martin Breast filming because we, we we do a little too bit of a close up on her crotch. And I'm like, okay, we get it. You don't like as she's talking about her, <laughs> yeah. her body parts, we do not need to focus on the body part. We get it. Let the very little, like minuscule amount of nuance in the sequence play out. And I do, I think that works. Like, I think there are moments in this movie that are genuinely captivating beyond the just oh god, the enigmatic the enigmatic level of it. Sure. There sure. is there is brilliance in this film beyond just the the train wreck level of it at all. Yeah, yeah, and I think that goes to what we were saying before. You know, Martin Brest is competent to to maybe not, you know, 100%, but a great extent, and and it shows for sure. I think, you know, it, it works uh, in those certain scenes, but I mentioned it earlier, and I, I, I do want to hit on it. Uh, the atmosphere of this movie, uh, it all feels so small to me. Most of the movie takes place in, in Giggly's apartment, and it, it just seems like everything's so tight and just between the two characters. And I get it, if that's what they're going for, rom-com between this man, this woman. Yeah, it's going to focus on them. But we never really get anything giving the movie any breath or letting it, you know, kind of show off that they're in L.A. even until the end when they actually go to the Baywatch. And that always surprises me when I'm watching this. Like, I just feel claustrophobic with this movie. Did you get that sense at all? I think it's less claustrophobic and more intimate. Ooh, that's a that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Uh, okay, okay. Mm, yeah, you know, especially when uh, she she jumps off the lesbian train for a second uh, at the near the end of the movie, and they have sex. Uh, it, it definitely gets more intimate there. I, I think, and that's another scene where the dialogue's goofy, but you know, I get what they're going for, type of thing. There is some chemistry there, I guess I should say, between with, with Benifer, and, and it shows in this movie. Um, but like we said, people were getting sick of it. Okay. Like it's a romance film that feels like it's such a weird concept. And again, like Rob said, nowadays you can never have the idea of a man trying to convince a woman not to be a lesbian. Um, like that's that's a no no. Just th- I would imagine just thinking about that would get somebody thrown in dire- director's jail. Mm-hmm. But as as a concept, like the idea of, and of course. We don't know what the original intent was. We don't know how much of that is studio meddling. But like Ebert said, that is a novel concept for a romance film between two of the prettiest people on the face of the earth at the time. Yeah, yeah. The idea of like Jennifer Lopez to this day being one of the continual sex symbols of pop culture for what, 30 years almost. Mm-hmm. And you have Ben Affleck, who at that point was had been around for at least 10 years and you make their rom-com about her being a lesbian, him trying to convince her not to be. And the question is, is there any way for a, for the male actor in that role to convince her to do that without being a meathead? Mm. Is there any way for a man to convince a beautiful lesbian to what was the phrase you used? Hop off the lesbian train. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is there any way she has the great, the great line when she she decides this and she's kind of well 
before this whole intimate scene with them happens, she starts saying, are you gay, Ben Affleck? How do you check your nails? And I'm like, what the <laughs> hell's going on? And then she, you know, lays back and she says, show, show this turkey what you got. Gobble, gobble. But it gets even better because he looks confused. And she says <laughs> one of the greatest lines, I think, this is, this is up there. This, oh, God, this whole incomprehensible blockbuster series is just amazing. She says, lay some of that sweet heterolingus on me. <laughs> heterolingus is not the term that is I was, slang I, I, here. I, w- I was tempted to write that down i'm like that's that's too brilliant not to have in my back pocket one day where are you going it's turkey time huh gobble gobble what now you talk the talk you know i'm expecting you to walk the walk come on Show me what I've been missing my whole life. Lay some of that sweet heterolingus on me. Lay some of that sweet heterolingus on me. Oh my but that, god! But that's but that's profound though. Like yes. that was, we, I know I use this phrase a lot. Like something's great in the worst way possible. That is one of those instances. Like as I was watching this, I kept thinking to myself, "This is either the." Like the greatest worst film ever, or the best. I'm sorry, the greatest worst film ever, or the the is truly a horrible film. Like it <laughs> really somewhere is. on that like, cusp. Yeah, it, it's one or the other. Like this film, there there is nothing like it in that sense. Like the dialogue, like I can't imagine a bunch of studio again. That's the weird thing though. Is like this is so horrible. Okay, I, I, I can. God, I have, I'm having a hard time talking about this. As as I was watching this, and I know this is a lot of me from like watching Red Letter Media stuff because they have their series, Best of the Worst, where they talk about bad movies. And one thing they always talk about is the idea, that, like, could anybody make a truly bad film on purpose? Like, I know in today's day and age, like post Tommy Wiseau's The Room, there is an entire genre now around so bad it's good. And there's there's movie and it's kind of died out now. It's not really a thing anymore. But like three to five years ago, that was a big thing, like making movies intentionally bad. Yeah. And that's what kind of led me to my theory about Martin Brush being like, okay, if they're gonna meddle, I'm gonna let them meddle to the furthest extent I can. I'm gonna let I'm gonna let them meddle this straight into the ground. Because as I was watching this, I don't get how any human being on the face of this earth could watch this and think, oh, this is this is good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And that's and that's what it comes down to is that some of this dialogue, like Ebert said, is just so profound. Is it either dialogue meticulously crafted by somebody who knows how people talk, or is it just hacks in a boardroom on the in the executive suite just slapping stuff together the best they can? That's that's a good question. There's no in between I, there. It's one or the other. Yeah, yeah. There's no. I definitely agree with you, but I I feel that I. There's some stuff, you know, that in this movie that I agree with you that it it could be, you know, oh my god, this is this is actually, you know, great dialogue, but at the same time there's other things that I find where I'm just like eh, no, this just seems terrible, you know? So I I can't reconcile it myself. But that's a great question. But it's it's dialogue that's terribly brilliant. At the same level as something like Tommy Wiseau's The Room, like you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Mm. It's it's. And I get a lot of that's also delivery, but there is delivery in this too. Like, that's where I'd love to ask Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, just being like, like even I think you I think you mentioned it yesterday. You said something like Christopher Walken has one of the greatest lines of dialogue ever. Yes. It's a thing about him going to Marie Calendar and getting all the pies and all that. <laughs> can I can it, I say it? Can I say it? Because go I, I ahead, know. Rob. Go ahead, Rob. Man, you know what I would love to do right now? 
Go down to Marie Callender's, get me a big bowl of pies. Put some ice cream on it. Mmm, good. Put some on your head. Your tongue would slap your brains out trying to get to it. Interested? Man, you know what I'd love to do? Right now? Go down to Marie Callender's. Get me a big bowl of pies. Some ice cream on it. Mm-hmm, good. Put some on your head. Your tongue would slap your brains out trying to get to it. Interested? Sure. <laughs> that's that's the sort oh of line of dialogue that I, I don't know how you make that up. Like, I, I, of course, uh, yeah. somebody made it up. But I don't get like I, we talked about it a few times on here. The idea, like when you're making a movie, nothing happens in a vacuum. Like you have to write it down on a piece of paper. Then, like especially in the studio, that piece of paper gets looked at by at least three or four different committees, all made up of about five to twelve people each. Then it gets handed to the actor. Then the actor has to reconcile it with their own thought process. Then it has to be filmed, and there's numerous takes of it. And yep. then add those numerous takes. They have to either pick one specific moment or ex- excise that moment from the entire film. And then after all those things happen, and when that take is decided, that's another group of committees that has to sign off on it over and over and over again. So when you get one moment like that, making it to the big screen, that's nothing short of a miracle. Any film would be lucky to have one moment like that in the film where you go, yeah. huh? How does that how does that line make it to the big screen? It almost causes you to do a double take while you're watching it. Yeah, exactly. Then you get Gili, which is an entire film made up of those miracles. That's that's <laughs> my pull quote for the Gili box. A film made up of moments of miracles. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> this film doesn't shouldn't exist. It really shouldn't exist because everything again, this is one of those movies that I'm like. If you're a studio executive and you're looking at the final cut of this, I have no idea if this got a Hollywood premiere. I I don't know how you look at this and not lose your mind. Like being like, yep. geez, like this is one of those movies that you walk out of the, the screening booth and you just go, like you it's like how many cigarettes are there? There's not enough for me to smoke right now to calm <laughs> me down. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That, that see, I, I, I do have to agree with you. I we do have those moments, but I, I guess like the Christopher Walken line, I blew me away the first time I watched it. Blows me away every time I watched it. Your tongue will slap your brains out trying to get to it. That's crazy. Put some on your head. But at the same time, I think my my issue reconciling it is maybe some of the smaller details. Like when Jennifer Lopez first shows up, uh, Giggly doesn't know that she was hired by Lewis, and she's like, "I just moved in. I need to use your phone." And he's like, well, I got, I got this mentally challenged dude. I don't want to let you in. He doesn't say that, but that's exactly what's going on. And she's like, oh, it'll be quick. It'll, it will probably be a local call. What does that mean? I just took a one bedroom in the front and I've been waiting all day for the phone company to come hook me up, but you know. Yes, this is kind of a bad. Uh... It'll only take a second, I promise. You know, it's probably a local call. What does it mean that the call you are you are asking someone else to make will probably be a local call? What the hell does that mean? And that's where I'm kind of like, that's just like, did nobody look at that line ever again? 
And even when what we get Lewis on the phone once and he's like, I will, if you don't do this job right, I will excoriate you, Giggly. Do you know what excoriate means? Uh, nothing comes to mind. It means to take the skin off of, to flay. I'm learning a word of the day and it is critical that I use them in conversation. It's like, we didn't need that. And I want you to know that I will personally excoriate anyone responsible for the tiniest fuck up in this action. And I want you to understand that. Yes, Lewis. Yes, Lewis? Do you happen to know what excoriate means? Uh, it's not coming to me at the moment. It means to strip or wear off the skin of, to flay. Now, I am learning a word a day, and it is critical to use these words in conversation, but that's not why I used it in this conversation. In this conversation, I used it because I meant it. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll be going now. It's like, this is just like adding nothing, you know? It doesn't it's, even add to this character. That's the sort of stuff, though, that seems really, really, like, there's some animosity. Like, Martin Bress is told, you gotta fix this movie, you have to retool it. And the studio goes, oh, again, they can't watch him watch him 100% of the time. Yeah, There's not always a studio executive breathing down your neck. And that's something I can imagine him doing, again, being very vindictive. Like, okay, you, you, you want this? I'm gonna give you, the, I'm gonna give you a flourish. And that's what this is. This movie has a lot of flourishes in it that are, again, enigmatic flourishes. That's probably the best way to describe them. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I want the script. Like, in all honesty, yes. I want a copy of the script that I can just <laughs> read every single night. They, I can know for certain movies, they really don't do it anymore, but they used to sell, like, the shooting script. I want that. I want the Gili shooting script. I can just look at every single day and be like, you know what? This, this, <laughs> this is my Bible. <laughs> if I ever want to write a screenplay, I'm gonna I'm gonna use this as my foundation. Because it is like there's like again, I wish I could repulse some of the dialogue from this. Like I would imagine somewhere on the internet someone's transcribed this entire thing. Because it is. Like, and probably Rob has a bunch of more quotes as well. But even like, with our character that's mentally handicapped, like even when like we have a moment in this where they're they they they're instructed to cut off the thumb of yep. our mentally handicapped character and they decide not to do it because they've kind of quote unquote found him endearing at this point yeah, they become so they a go- family throughout the course of this movie <laughs> more or less and they go to the the hospital and they go to the 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 morgue and ben affleck goes into the the cooling part and somebody's lunch is sitting there inexplicably because why not and he finds a plastic knife yeah. and starts sawing off a cadaver's thumb and while this is happening our mentally handicapped character who has been established at this point anytime he feels uncomfortable starts humming rap lyrics Mm -hmm. so while ben affleck is sawing off a cadaver's thumb we hear a mentally handicapped character saying i like big butts and i cannot lie yeah other brothers can't deny when a woman walks in with anybody wasting around thing in your face you get and that's (laughs) exactly and we get that. That's a thing that happens in this movie. Oh, That's yeah. one moment. I like big butts, and I cannot lie. The other brothers can't deny. When the girls walk in with the A-B waist and round things in your face, you get sprung. Well, pull up tough, because you notice that butt was stuffed. Because I'm long, and I'm strong, and I'm down to get the friction on. So, ladies, yeah, ladies, yeah, you want to roll my Mercedes? Yeah. So turn around, stick out. Even white boys got to shout. Baby got back. We go, we go, we go, we go, we go, we go. Baby got back. We go, we go, we go. We go. <laughs> That's an old school. That's an old school song. Your old school too, Larry. Your old school. One. 
and in I, a movie I do filled with moments like that. And I do like it when after he's done singing and it, it cuts like it shows Giggly like sawing. It hits a shot of uh, Ben Affleck's face, but you can hear like the sawing off the thumb with uh-huh. the plastic knife. That that yep. deserves to not be diminished. It's a goddamn plastic utensil. That's not cutting through bone, okay? <laughs> but at the end, uh, Brian, the mentally uh, handicapped character, he says something like. You're old school, Larry. You're old school. <laughs> I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> oh, and I don't know if I, I guess we'll say it now because that's that's the point um, that, that connects to it. I don't know if Zach watched all the way through the credits to this movie. Oh, oh no. But that oh. is how with with our mentally challenged character singing. I like big butts and I cannot lie. That is how the credits end. Really? Yes, the credits, it, it cuts to, like, the last bit of credits ends with, there is some music in the background, but it is Justin Bartha in character singing that song. So I, with now what we said, that might be the biggest evidence to, like, Martin Brest's vindictiveness with this movie. Like, that's how he's going to send it off. <laughs> yeah, uh, it should be pointed out, too, like, I was just doing research right now, that this film never got a Blu-ray release. Oh, I loved um, I looked. Yeah. I was. I was. It, ready it's got to the. Buy it, it got. It got. It got the DVD release back in two thousand three. Yeah. From what I can tell, no bonus features. Uh, yeah, that's um, what I found. I was just, very upset. I was. So, I was so ready just to order it immediately. <laughs> just a bare bones DVD with the film, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. We've nothing ever since. I don't. Yeah. I would imagine that it's not even in print anymore. Yeah, you can find. I did find some people selling the uh, the posters for it. So expect that in the mail. That's what I'm getting you, Zach. <laughs> Big old giggly posts. Are, are they? Or, no, this is my question. Are they originals or are they reproductions? Uh, that I don't know. I would have to look there. I actually found a, a good bit of sources, but um, that's what I'll have to look into for sure. Yeah, we, we, we need the original. Like, imagine going to Jennifer Lopez. Like, will you sign this? We go to Ben Affleck. He comes out of rehab. Will you sign this? We find Christopher <laughs> Walken and Al Pacino. <laughs> Oh my god! I, we spend we spend years looking for Martin Brest to like <laughs> the final signature we need on this. Now that would be like I don't think I've ever told Rob this story. That at one point, like in the wake of Fant Four Stick coming out, mm-hmm. I got one of the official posters for like ten dollars, and I was going to actually start a goal. I, I was going to do it. I was going to start a, a goal of getting everybody involved with the film to sign it. I was going to write to like Miles Teller, Kate Mara, <laughs> Michael B. Jordan. Uh, oh my God. Uh, I, I can see him, but I can't think of his name. The, doc- the guy who covers Dr. Doom? Or the- no, no. Well, yeah, Toby Campbell, but not oh, whoever, okay. whoever plays the thing. Oh, I can yeah. See I, him, but I can't think of his name. Uh, Jamie, Jamie Bell, I think. Um, I was going to write to the writers, uh, try to get Josh Trank. I, I did buy the poster. I was, <laughs> nice. I was going to attempt it. I still have it. I think it has, I, I, I still want to do that. It's like one of my life goals. I want to have the entire cast and the majority of the, the major creatives involved sign that poster. And maybe like in 20 years, they might. Like in 20 years, I could imagine them being like, oh, I, they know like a lot. I would imagine when they sign things, they figure people are just going to sell them. Yeah. Where like if it's somebody doing that, you know, like okay, this is a person that's a fan. Like, exactly. This is somebody. This is somebody who likes this for a very specific reason. Who cares why? But they're doing it in earnest. It's not like somebody going up to like James Cameron or George Lucas being like, "Sign my Star Wars poster." Mm-hmm. Where it's like most likely someone's just doing it to have it to resell it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I know. Even uh, I'm more familiar with the musicians. I know they hate it. You get always. I it always. I hate it when I see it. People go up to artists after concerts and they have like. They bought like 10 of the posters at the merch mm-hmm. table and they're like, can you sign all of these? And it's like, get the fuck out of here. 
Yeah, that's that's the problem. Is that like? But I do want to do that though. And Gili be one of those ones, much like, oh God, Cat in the Hat. Yes. Or oh, Book yeah. of Henry. It's one of those ones where I would love to have like a genuine collection of movie posters from like these just bizarro movies that shouldn't exist. Being like, oh, I, I have Mike Myers and uh, oh God, what was his name? Who did Cat in the Hat? Oh, I don't remember the director, but uh, who else? Spencer Breslin, Spencer uh, Alec, Breslin. Alec Baldwin, Dakota Fanning, <laughs> Dakota Fanning, yeah. Nevins, get the dog to sign get it. Nevins, <laughs> the fall print. print, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be a fun, that'd be a fun life goal. Like, like get posters and again. A lot of those posters aren't hard to find. Like Book of Henry would be another one. If I get, oh man, Colin Madman Trevorrow signing a Book of Henry poster. Oh, no, nothing would be more delightful, folks. That'd be a cinematis like New Year's resolution yes. for 2020. Get a book of Henry poster and have Colin Madman Trevorrow sign it. I'm just imagining like you and I together with the poster meeting Colin Trevorrow and be like, "Will you sign this?" And as he starts to sign it, be like, "You have to write Madman in the middle." Like we make him write <laughs> Colin Madman Trevorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I bet if you got him to sign that, I, I I don't know about him. Like, I think he is humbled a little bit now after what mm-hmm. happened with Star Wars and and Book of Henry. So he might do that. I, I, he might have a sense of humor enough to do that. But I don't know. We we have to catch him right before Jurassic World Three comes out. Ah, yeah. And before, of before his the, ego gets inflated. And of course, the biggest signature on the Book of Henry poster would be Dean Norris. <laughs> I wanted him like block letters. <laughs> excuse me, Rob. I think it'd be Naomi Watts. Oh, that that's a tough one. Yeah, for sure. She's got she's ste- she's both busy stealing kids. We had to go to an orphanage <laughs> to find her, get her to sign something. <laughs> oh my god! And she's gonna uh, be like, "Where are your parents, little boy?" And be like, "We're twenty seven. What are you talking about?" And she's like, "I'm gonna forge your I'm gonna forge your signature." <laughs> we get Jacob Tremblay's signature. Oh, oh god! Oh man, this, this is this might become like the uh, once the restaurant goes under or burns down or I don't know implodes on itself in the infinite void. This is what we'll switch to: just traveling the, the world trying to get signatures, posters. <laughs> what we do is we get we get a Doctor Sleep poster. We get Stephen King to sign it, and as he's signing it, we we hold it up. Then we deliberately punch through the poster and punch him in the face with it. Like, this is what you get for ruining The Shining. Honey, this movie called me an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, this poster punched me in the face. Oh man. Oh Jesus. That's still oh, okay. That's I want I, I want on record. I know I've told this story before, but in high school and Rob made the infamous thing about uh your kind's not welcome here. What Jewish, oh, no yeah. stupid. I yeah. think Rob's the, the follow-up or the the cinematis equivalent of that is the Stephen King shining comment. Honey, this film called me an asshole. <laughs> That's the, that's the cinematic equivalent of that. Oh, yeah, Stephen King one. watching The Shining in 1980 being like, this movie called me an asshole. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, uh, okay. We have fun here. We have fun here. Yes, yes we do. We, <laughs> we amuse ourselves you know, to our audience of, of tens of listeners. Yes. Um, but yeah, Gigli. I guess since we got off on the tangent with um, uh, Justin Bartha, Brian, our, our mentally challenged hero of this movie, uh, we should say that he has two motivations in this film. One is, of course, the way that Ben Affleck is able to get him out of the assisted living home that he's in and, and kind of, you know, kidnap him, even though our character, uh, Brian, doesn't know he's being kidnapped. He wants to go to the Baywatch. And that's how he says it, the Baywatch. He puts the article there. Ben Affleck, giggly in this movie, has no idea what this, this means. And that's how he gets him out, and he just keeps telling Brian that the Baywatch is closed. 
in probably the most offensive way possible, he pretends a flashlight is a walkie-talkie. <laughs> it, I think what happens two times, Ben Alex in the car, I think, yeah. he pulls out a, a, a flashlight from his glove compartment, holds it up to his ear, and he's like, oh, it's my walkie-talkie. What's that? It's closed today. Oh, these fucking guys. This is how it happens. Just when you have a big trip planned to the Baywatch, they go and close it. Baywatch. Here we come. Hey, uh, wait a minute. You hear that now? What is that? You hear that? Oh. Yep. It's my walkie-talkie calling. Yeah, hello. Hey, I told you don't ever bother me again when I'm taking trips with my friends. Yep. What? No, we're going to the Baywatch. Yep, that's right, the Baywatch. Huh? No. Holy mackerel. Would you know when they're going to be open again? Ah, uh, okay. We'll call you tomorrow for the update. Okay. How do you like that? Baywatch is closed today. No. Tomorrow we'll go. We go tomorrow. I can't believe it. This always happens like that, right? When you, when you plan a big trip. And that's how he keeps Brian kind of tagging along until they all become friends type of thing or a family is that he keeps telling them the Baywatch is closed. So that's that's one of Brian's main motivations. He wants to go to the Baywatch. I, I have a lot to say about the Baywatch, but his other motivation is he is sexually attracted to women with Australian accents. So much so that he calls a weather yep. service in yep. Australia to hear the woman's voice reading off the weather. And and it's, uh, at the climax of the movie, or maybe not the climax, the end of the movie, these two things coalesce when he goes to the Baywatch and meets an Australian girl. I can I can't say this with a straight face, Zach. <laughs> but the so the first time I watched this, you hear it so much. It's it's almost ad nauseum. I want to go to the Baywatch. I want to go to the Baywatch. I want to go to the Baywatch all the time. I have to go to the Baywatch. I'm sorry. What? I have to go to the Baywatch. I was gonna go. You want to watch Baywatch? Roll by my apartment. We'll turn on Baywatch. <laughs> stupid person! You stupid person! That television, the Baywatch. Oh, the Baywatch. Yeah, the Baywatch. Okay. Yeah, right. the Baywatch. Yeah. Can I go? And even when Brian starts to be like, I want to go home, Ben Affleck goes, Well, how are we going to go to the Baywatch tomorrow if you go home? And that keeps him there. The first time I watched this, the whole time, I'm like. What the fuck is the Baywatch? And I'm like, he has to just mean the ocean, right? Like this this kid in his, or, or you know, I, I guess we don't really know how old he is. He just lives in this assisted living home, and maybe he just keeps seeing Baywatch, the show on TV, and he just loves the ocean. And so the the first time I watched this, I was convinced he just wants to go to the ocean because that, and that's what he thinks the ocean is, the Baywatch. But no, it's revealed. He actually wants to go to the set of the show yeah. Baywatch. This blew my mind the first time I saw it, Zach. It still blows my mind when I think about it. The Baywatch is just Baywatch or some show where people run on the beach with surfboards, right? Like, there's no confirmation that they go to Baywatch in the end. It's just something filming on a beach, right? I think it's just scantily clad women on the beach. I think that's essentially, that's the Baywatch. The the Baywatch. And so I'm glad you bring that up because while we get a lot of, I want to go to the Baywatch, and we don't really know what that means till the end, we do get the, the Australian, he's calling the Australian Weather Service because he likes the way the girl's voice sounds. But then we get probably, uh, probably the, oh God, I can't even say probably, 
one of the they're all in the same tier. One of the most derogatory scenes in this movie where Brian and uh, Giggly are sitting in Giggly's car because J-Lo has to take care of her suicidal girlfriend that just slit her wrists in Giggly's apartment. They're sitting in the car outside the hospital and they start talking about what I gather is the male orgasm as pee sneezes. Yep. And and Brian goes on to say that when his when his PP sneezes, he says, God bless you, penis. And then we get a callback after Ben Affleck and J-Lo have sex that night. Ben Affleck says, God bless you, penis. It's like the ones the Baywatch. Yeah. They make my penis sneeze. <laughs> You got a good sense of you, you know that? God bless you. Thank you. No, not you stupid. When my penis sneeze, I say, God bless you. God bless you, penis. <laughs> this is so... I don't know why. I, 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 it I took, don't know how this exists. It took I have no idea how this movie years, It took almost two years, but we've talked about sex more in this and the last two episodes than ever before on Cinemodities. Technically the last three. Well, we talked about it a lot last week, but what was it? The uh, uh, Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky, definitely. I think, yeah, Charlie's Angels was a lot of the sexuality of it, but this this movie is very much just, God bless you, penis. Like, and and so this is what I wanted to ask you. Is the implication that while Brian is sitting in Giggly's car, he ejaculates. Did he come in his pants? Is that what we're supposed <laughs> to be led, led to believe? Because I I, I was sexual wondering was that. happening. The girl cut her wrists. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I really, it's one of those things where it's like, I, okay, this film might actually be, be more profound than the Book of Henry. <laughs> um, somehow. Somehow we might have taught the Book of Henry. Um, maybe more impressed realized that he'll never be able to make another piece of art is, is genuinely profound. Again, he realized, I have to stop. I can he, never make anything this unique ever again. He's just biding his time till PC culture dies down and the world can recognize this as the great artistic work it truly is. I, <laughs> I, I don't know, though. Like, I, I want to focus on Gigli, but, like, how are things, like, and I get it. Freddie got fingered as much more, like, like visceral on the surface. Mm-hmm. This film, strange as it may sound, is much more subtle with its, uh, its bizarreness. But, like, how are these things not recognized? I, I get it. We have weird things in today's culture that get attention. Like, again, like I know people, we've talked about it in the past, like with a straight story. Like, David Lynch is finally being like appreciated by, yeah, as much as the mat, as much by the masses as possible. Mm-hmm. Yet, how are things like, how are things, and I guess this goes back to like when we talked about Freaked, like, like how just like how something gets like momentum in the culture. How is something like Gigli not on Turner Classic Movie Underground? Oh. How is Freddie got fingered? And I get it, politically correct reasons. But as a, and I get it, there's probably, I, okay, I guess I'm going to answer my own question. I guess people, I could concern that Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez are still major stars. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if people in their camp deliberately keep this buried. I would imagine that if a Blu-ray release ever did try to get off the ground, their, their people would smother it. But how has this not gotten a following like a Tommy Wiseau's The Room? Yeah, that's a great point. Exactly. This yeah, film why, is why isn't more this bizarre getting, than that. 
Yeah, oh, 100%. It's it's more a uh, god. I, the, the room is almost painful for me to watch, you know? And it, it, this, I don't feel that way, of course, and that's opinionated, but you're absolutely right. Like, why doesn't this get thrown on at a random time on Adult Swim, you know? I know we've talked about that before, but this has to be, we can't be the only ones that, you know, realize this. Like you said, there's other people, you know, lambasting it, making fun of it like that, but you have to realize, like, it is insane, and I think everybody does realize this, but you're right. It, it's just kind of ignored for the most part. It is. It's it's insane brilliance. And in today's culture where we kind of worship everything that's weird and bizarre, there's so many movies out there that are not even hard to find. Like I'm not talking about like a death kiss where it's like, uh, you have to really kind of go looking for that. Mm-hmm. You have to really like be tapped into certain like circles online to know when that even was even released. But this was something that's not hard to find. Like you can like it's available on eBay as a DVD for like three dollars, including yep. shipping. <laughs> like if you want to get this movie, it's not hard to come by. I don't know, Rob. Is this available for streaming anywhere? Is this on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon? Well, um, I, uh, I did available? not. I did not look, but I know Hot Dogs for Gogon is nowhere. Oh, four four bucks on YouTube, four bucks on Amazon Prime, four bucks so on available. iTunes, four bucks okay. on Google Play. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not hard to find. Um, yeah, I, I don't get it. For, yeah, it's even funny enough. In the podcast I was listening to today, they even say like. We spent four dollars. We'll never get back after like doing this. And it's like four bucks. That's cheap. Yeah. Like I, like, I want the Criterion release of Geely. <laughs> I want the Steelbook. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know. Like I, I get it. Uh, we live in a culture where we worship everything and value nothing. But I don't know. Like considering how there's so much stuff nowadays that we highlight. I, I guess maybe it's also we have a very unique perspective on these movies that we know when things are genuinely great. Like, mm. tell me why Sal's The Room is just a guy who shouldn't have been making a movie making a movie. Yes. It's it's someone who's incompetent making a film. It's not hard to... It's like all those... Uh, it's, oh God, Samurai Cop, where you have like the Iranian filmmaker who has, who's trying to make like an 80s lethal weapon film. It oh, has okay. no idea. And you have what the, 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 the sexy nurse that goes up to the main character is like, would you like to fuck me? And you have like you cut to like the uh, the 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 other main actor, and he's like he's making like all the faces like, whoa, and, and, and clearly they're in shot like the insert shots. Then we cut back to the main character, and he's like, maybe I get off at nine, and she's like, do you find me attractive? And it's like, yeah, like it's it's the idea of a foreigner trying to understand okay. something, but it's lost in translation. And it's like, of course, there's gonna be goofy moments that come out of that that process, but this is. $75 million. Yes. Insane. <laughs> Absolutely insane. And, it, and this is like the most profound type of insane. Whereas like with Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, it's an example of nobody said no. Nothing mm-hmm. but trouble. Nobody says no. Uh, Cameron Crowe, Vanilla Sky. It's Cameron ha- Cameron Crowe on a, uh, just a, oh God, thinking he's better than everybody else. He's working with Tom Cruise. He's at the height of his powers. He can do whatever he wants. This is just nobody, like, nobody wants to take credit for this. Yeah. All those other films, someone wants to take credit for Like, I would imagine Dan Ancroy is very proud of his initial cut of, oh, God, what's it called? Uh, Nothing but Trouble? No, no, what was the original name for it? Uh, Oh, God, something uh, alien. Well, Welcome, wasn't it had, it was like Welcome to Vulcan, it didn't have the Yes, Vulcanvania. Vulcanvania, Vulcan yeah. Vul- yeah. That, like, in that original incarnation, t- Dan and Crow would love to take credit for it. I would imagine Cameron Crowe is not embarrassed at all about, about Vanilla Sky. Yeah. And even Mick G, I would imagine Mick G's like, sure, I maybe would have done some things differently, but as a whole, I can't complain about Charlie's Angels full throttle. Mm-hmm. 
I would, nobody on earth wants their name associated with Gigli, maybe even us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we said, it's going back in the vault after this. <laughs> we're going to protect it. Maybe, maybe at the same time we're protecting the masses from it, but maybe at the same time we're going to unleash it. We're going to unleash Gigli on the masses. Oh, that just makes me think, I don't, this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but for the restaurant, we would have like a, uh, like a vault type of thing. And it's set up the same way that the um, the the original Last Supper is. So for anyone is unaware, like the the original Last Supper is painted on a, on a the a wall of of a some type of church or monastery or something like that. And if you want to go see it, there can only be so many people in the room at a time because like it's a very very um, protected environment. And so we do something like that where we only let in like five people and a guard to watch Geely like once a day or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I uh, that, that's another thing too. Like even when it comes to film preservation, you'd hope Sony has the negative still. Oh yeah, fingers crossed. Because there are things like we've talked about with Freak, where like the original negative doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. or if it does, nobody knows where it is. Yeah, and this is one of those movies that nobody cares about. So it's like, would this be something that just kind of gets left out? That just kind of not this like not that it gets discarded, but it just gets left to kind of just rot. It seems like the people who would make that decision would want to do that, you know, because since it was received so poorly, it, it's like they it seems and what we've been discussing, it seems like they want to wipe it from the face of the earth. And as our listeners should know, it, that's something Zach and I say should never happen. Like, even like the uh, the Fantastic Four, Avi Arad burning the prince. It's like, no, that should just never, ever happen. Art should always exist, whether you like it or not. There should always be some way to recollect it. Everything will deteriorate on its own accord. It's 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 heinous to deliberately destroy something. A hundred percent in agreement with you. Yeah, um, but yeah, Gili. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we try we try to make it a little highbrow here, folks. We can't talk about uh, penis sneezes all the time on this podcast. God bless you, penis. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Okay, I guess I guess with um, okay, we had to talk about Brian, our 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 pee sneeze hero, who get who does get to go to the Baywatch the, at the end of the movie. That's always fun. Um, Walkin and Pacino, we have to talk about Walkin. We had his great line. His whole monologue is awesome. He's the detective that's on Gili's tail because apparently uh, it, it's not really stated, but it seems like they know each other. Like maybe Gili and, and Walken as the detective have like had run-ins before or something like that. But Walken is basically trying to find out where the brother of this federal prosecutor went. And that's kind of freaks them out that it's a federal prosecutor. If you're kidnapping somebody and you're going to cut off their thumb, you're in the hole. Okay. It doesn't matter if it's federal or not, you know, you're, you're, you've done the damage, but uh, his whole Christopher Walken's whole monologue stuff is great. Yeah. We did the Marie calendars thing. It's an amazing line, but there was something that I, I didn't pick up on my first viewing and it only it was in my subsequent ones that I, I really laugh out loud. Now when um, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are talking about like what what they're gonna do. I, well, not what they're gonna do. Ben Affleck's like, get the hell out of here. I don't need help. Blah blah blah. Uh, someone starts banging on the door. Ben Affleck goes up to it and he's like, Larry, I know you're in there. And Ben Affleck goes up and he's like, Oh shit, it's this detective. And he hides he hides um, uh, Brian away in the back room so the detective can't see him. As Ben Affleck is walking away from the door to hide Brian, you hear Christopher Walken say through the door, Larry, it's your mother. Open up. And then when right before Giggly opens the door, you hear Christopher Walken say, I got a chicken. <laughs> Are you expecting somebody? 
the character knows there's a peephole on the door he's already he knows he's a male voice but he's saying larry open up it's your mother i have a chicken <laughs> it's amazing it's we didn't even talk about the mother thing oh yes that ben affleck has to go over to his mother to give her injections in her butt and she's wearing like what a pink heart thong oh yes a very pronounced thong she is uh she is Jersey Shore to the max, I would say. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what's her name from what my big fat Greek wedding. Like, yeah, um, I think it's Lainey Kazan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Lainey become, Kazan. Who, yeah, who became kind of like the a weird, oh god, prototypical like mom in movies in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. She was even in uh, "You Don't Mess with the Zohan." That's right. I forgot about that. Oh, <laughs> another movie we'll probably get to one yeah, day, right? We'll, we'll get to You Don't Mess With The Zohan one day. It's all about the bush. <laughs> <laughs> disco, disco, good, good. Disco, disco, good, good. Oh, the good. My favorite joke in that movie is the the businesses are constantly going out of sa- going out of business. Everything Everything's on sale. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, Zohan's so, a lot of fun. Yeah. The mother scene, yes. The mother scene is uh, another strange one, but it's it's not as strange as the Pacino or the walk-in scene. But on this viewing for this recording, I definitely got it in my head, and I had to do the research. What the hell is Ben Affleck injecting into her? <laughs> like, like what could this be? And I think the immediate, because the movie doesn't say. The, there's, there's nothing... The, the movie just gets on. It's like, Ma, why'd you make me do this? You could have had your neighbor, Mrs. Leonard, do this. And I'm like, why couldn't she have done it herself? Like, she has a mirror, and she clearly knows where the needle's supposed to go. So I think the movie with the, you know, the overt, like, the 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 mafioso Jersey Shore type of thing. Sure. I, I would imagine it's some type, the movie was going for that it's some type of collagen injection. Yeah. Uh, but I, I went on <laughs> a tear of looking up. Well, what the hell would you inject into your ass? Like, what would you need to have a buttocks injection for? And apparently, uh, you're learning a lot, Cinemati's listeners. You're learning about Martin Brast, about Giggly, about butt injections. Here we go. Apparently, a butt injection is an intramuscular injection, which provides faster absorption than a regular subcutaneous injection. Common things that you would uh, inject into a butt would be antibiotics, uh, something called glutathione, which prevents poisonous side effects of chemotherapy. I think we can rule that one out. It does not look like she's a cancer patient in this film. But the other thing I found was you would inject, an uh, intramuscular injection would happen for a depot injection, which is a slow-release, slow-acting form of medication. So if, like, if you have to take a medication daily, and uh, maybe if you're older and you, don't, you can't remember to take it sometimes, you would do this type of injection, and it would kind of last you longer than just a daily dose. And then I found collagen, if you want your butt to look bigger. And clearly, with the thong shot in and, and both Ben Affleck's hands and yep. I think the mother's hands on her ass, it's got to be collagen, right? <laughs> I, insane. Yeah, insane. Like, that's the weird thing. Like, in any other movie, that one specific moment would be the highlight. Yep, and it kind of gets buried in this. Yep, it gets buried <laughs> under everything else that happens. And I can't help but feel that maybe all these cameos were all reshoots. Whether it be Christopher Walken, the mother, Al Pacino, the fact they feel all just like so inserted into the plot, yep, and and they're all comical in nature. 
Oh yeah. I, I can't help but feel that. I can't help feel that. It was like, okay, we'll get we'll get we'll get some actor in for for like a weekend, and it'll make the movie do better. Yeah, that's a good point because it is it is so small. I like the first time I watched it, I was expecting Christopher Walken to come back because he's the detective. Like uh, there should be some like I thought he was going to come back in the climax. They're going to have to run from him, but no, they have to run from Pacino because as we set up, that's that's why they're kidnapping this dude. Their boss Lewis wants to kidnap the uh, the prosecutor's brother to blackmail him to drop charges against Pacino for whatever. We don't know what he's in trouble for. I don't think the movie ever says anything like it. They get called in by Pacino, who flies in from New York to L.A. Lewis, J. Lo, and Ben Affleck all meet with him. Al Pacino, Al Pacino says he's he's like I'm the man that says everything twice, and then proceeds to say nothing twice. Um, he at one point, oh, another great line. He says, "Lewis, do you want to go to medical school?" And Lewis is like, "What?" Shoots Lewis through the head and says, "Now you're going to medical school. The students are going to use your body to learn on." Lewis, you want to go to medical school? Medical school. <laughs> yeah. Students there can always use something to learn on. Fantastic. That's actually like that's where I'm with you, Zach. That's clever dialogue for a kill scene. I'm fine with that. And we do get the great shot, probably my favorite shot of the movie. Lewis's brains splatter into Al Pacino's fish tank, and we get to see the fish eating it. Like, that's where the crime drama, uh, like, should have been built up more, I think. But we realize that Al Pacino's character shot Lewis and is proceeding to scream at Ben Affleck and J-Lo for doing everything they've done in the movie. Al Pacino completely undercuts everything we've seen in this movie. And what are we supposed to take from this? That Al Pacino didn't want any of this to happen and Lewis was like a rogue agent of his? Like, this makes no sense to me. How did you take this? His kind of freak out at the end. Uh, It's Pacino doing his shtick and he probably was doing Martin Brush the favor. That's how I see it. I think that's the easiest way to uh, describe that. So, so you think that, but, but how, how could that be? Uh, this is where I think we might get in the vindictiveness again. Like Pacino basically says, why did you do anything you did in this movie? Yeah. And, exactly. and that could be him saying to, you know, uh, uh, as a surrogate, Martin Brest saying to the, the studio, whoever meddled, like, why did you do this to this movie? It's just crazy to me. It just kind of undercuts it doesn't undercut the gloriousness of what we've seen, but in, in a movie sense, it undercuts the entire plot. And that is so strange to me. I, again, I, I feel that was done after the fact. Okay. Um, and even like I, very similar, not similar, but in the same sort of vibe I get is from the very opening of the film where Ben Affleck is putting somebody in a dryer, how kind of this like campy and goofy that is. Oh, um, <laughs> I almost forgot and, when and Ben Affleck's character uh, says dialogue that reveals he doesn't understand the concept of density. He's like, if I remove 80% of the water from your body, you'd lose 80% of your weight, right? And it's like, no, no, <laughs> that's not how weight and density works. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I feel. I feel a lot of this was plugged in after the fact. This is, this is where the retooling comes in. And I think mm-hmm. that's what it was. And probably Martin Brest called out Pacino, considering they're friends for years, to yep. just go nuts. Get Pacino, I'm letting you off the leash. Have fun with this. Yeah, Pacino, do your thing. Okay. But but that's kind of the, the last bit of the movie is Pacino is like, I'm going to kill everybody because they're all stupid, which makes no sense because that's only going to add to his legal troubles, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, oh, and of course, you know, the 
the the people Ben Affleck and J Lo are idiots, and they don't understand that if they send a thumb, it's going to have a fingerprint on it, and the fingerprint is an identifying factor that they didn't take it off the brother. Um, and J Lo gives some what speech where it's like you can't kill us because we gotta tie up the loose end of of Brian of the brother we kidnapped, and then they just decide to run, and that's kind of the end of the movie because as they're running and they're taking Brian back to his uh, assisted living home where Ben Affleck picked him up. They find the Baywatch. <laughs> As they always should. Yes, they finally, the, the big reveal that the Baywatch is not the ocean as I thought it was. It's actually filming at the ocean. And then I, I do want to highlight that I have two notes, consecutive notes. It's very similar to um, when in Vanilla Sky I was like, Cameron Diaz sucks in this movie. Oh, wait, no, I'm on board now. I, I have one note, all caps, they go to the Baywatch. I also should say a lot of my notes is just me writing. I want to go to the Baywatch. <laughs> I love that a lot. My next note after they go to the Baywatch is they leave Brian at the Baywatch. And, and Giggly uses a payphone to call the uh, federal attorney's office. And he's like, yo, this dude we kidnapped here. Bye. <laughs> that was pretty amusing, though. I thought that was I thought that that was funny. Yeah, he does. He does a good job where he's like, "Oh, you want my name? Yeah, hold on. What is it? Oh, I forgot." And he hangs up the phone or something like that. <laughs> that's that's at least with Ben Affleck being Ben Affleck. That's yeah. at least when he, he's being used appropriately. Too bad it happens in the last like ten seconds of the movie, but yeah, yeah. I, I there's there's so much. This is another one of those movies that if if we care to be fun to really go through and try to figure out what was part of the original cut and what wasn't, mm -hmm. but it, that that's anyone's guess at this point. And while Brian is at the Baywatch, uh, J-Lo drives off into the distance because she's like, I'm still a lesbian. Like, you know, I had sex with you, Ben Affleck, but I'm still a lesbian. She comes back. Don't worry. They have a happy ending. But as Giggly is just kind of standing there, I guess not knowing what to do. Oh, because he gives J-Lo his car. Yes. That, that. <laughs> he gives J-Lo his car. So he's kind of stuck there. I think he's contemplating the fact that he's stuck at the exact spot he just told the government to come to find the kidnapped pers kidnap person. And as he's standing there, he's watching Brian. Uh, in uh, Brian somehow gets on set of, of the Baywatch, and he's in like this big scene with extras. And there's a girl in a bikini next to him. And we get this great kind of back and forth shot of Brian, like looking at the girl and giggly going like, come on, you can do it, Brian. You can talk to this girl. Cause we didn't even talk about the scene before where giggly tells Brian how to talk to women in the car. Yep. And it just, just so happens that this woman that, uh, Brian says, nice weather we're having while they're on the beach and everybody's in bikinis. Of course it's nice weather they're having. She has an Australian accent. And they start to dance together in this movie. And that's considered a happy ending for Brian. Because there's no way he's going to stay with, with that girl. He has to go back to his assisted living home. The, the state's, uh, the federal prosecutor's going <laughs> to come pick him up. Don't rain. Don't rain on the parade, Rob. Don't rain on the parade. <laughs> he found the Baywatch. He got his Australian girl. He gets to dance with her. He likes big butts and he cannot lie. It all comes, it all comes together at the end. I don't know, Rob. She was a pretty, pretty like pale white girl. I'm pretty sure Australians aren't known for having big, big badonkadonk. So, well, yeah, she, she didn't have a big butt, but he, he does like them, and he does not lie about that. <laughs> <laughs> He's oh, more into dear. the accent for sure. Yeah, and and that's that's our happy ending because after that, you know, Giggly is like, yeah, you got it, Brian. You're dancing with a girl, <laughs> and God bless you, penis. And then J Lo swings back around, and she's like, okay, I guess I'm not a lesbian anymore. And they she, hopped, she, hopped, the she hopped off the lesbian train. <laughs> she hopped off the lesbian train. Yep. 
Oh God! And that—that's the movie. I think the the one the, the one little line I do want to highlight because doesn't really fit anywhere else. We didn't talk about the scene where um, uh, they have to go get food because Brian is hungry. Um, there's 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 some food scenes we're gonna talk about in this when we get to snacks. Don't worry. But as they go to some like little restaurant on the strip or the beach or wherever, there's a bunch of hooligans playing their music too loud. <laughs> Because of course, that's that's just terrible. And and you know, Ben Affleck says something like, "Can you turn that down?" And the kids are like, "You turn it down, Grandpa." J Lo doesn't want to make a scene. She proceeds to make a scene by telling the the kid that said this to Ben Affleck, she's gonna rip his eyeballs out so hard he's never gonna even remember the things he's seen before. This gets the kids to to calm down or whatever. And as they're leaving. Ben Affleck, you know, J-Lo leaves first, he gets Brian to leave, and as Ben Affleck passes by <laughs> yep. the kids, he picks up his la- their laptop, goes, nice laptop, breaks it over his leg, and says, suckmydick.com. <laughs> <laughs> nice computer. Is suckmydick.com. Brilliant. It, it, it comes oh, out of beautiful. nowhere. It it's is beautiful. It is brilliant. <laughs> it fits nowhere else in the movie, but once again, it's it's like it's it's a mo- it's a movie filled with moments of miracles, just like Zach said. Folks, you're lucky that like for our, our two year anniversary that we already have Rob has his little episode, his year in review, because we might have to do that for the third year anniversary. We actually do a live read of yes. the Gili <laughs> script. It's, it's profound. It's profound. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, because really uh, there's if if there's so much more to talk about, we didn't talk about how Ben Affleck reads household items <laughs> to Brian to get him to go to sleep. He reads Tabasco ingredients. He reads toilet paper, paper. Uh, whatever, like not ingredients, but whatever's on the back of toilet just paper. The, the information on the packaging. Yeah. And so that's supposed to be affectionate and it just comes off as weird. Um, I, I guess another here, here's another learning fact. There's out of nowhere. At some point in the movie, Brian just says, Larry, how much spit do you think you swallow in a day? And I, I'm pretty sure I can never tell. Every time I see this, Brian's like, "How much spit do you think you swallow in a day, Larry?" And Larry's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And I'm, Brian either says three to five cups, but I think he says thirty-five cups. Yes, yes. Okay, thirty-five cups is almost two and a quarter gallons. It's uh, thirty-five cups is two and three sixteenth gallons. That's a shitload of spit. The actual answer is about three cups. Okay. 35 cups is insane. Could you imagine if you were producing that much spit? Something's wrong with you. (laughs) Some sort of gland is overreacting to something in your body. Exactly. You need a butt injection to fix that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Right above your uh, red thong. Exactly. And so, yes. So that's another thing. You uh, uh, two to six cups, apparently for a healthy person, uh, the average is three cups. And the actual, one of the, one of the things I found about this, they said, uh, you know, the, uh, a medical website said two to six cups, a mental floss article said average three cups. And then some other things said about a wine bottle's worth. Oh and I was like, oh God, who, who's writing this article? <laughs> <laughs> Martin Brest. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Oh yeah, there, there's so much in this movie. There's there's so much, and it just fell off the map, like we were talking about. It got so much hate before it came out. It got so much hate when it came out. And as we've been saying, it's now considered one of the worst things ever. Ever made, yep. And it, it's not. It is. It's offensive. Don't get us wrong. There's a lot of derogatory statements 
to, you know, mentally challenge people and, and just, you know, people in general of sexual orientation, uh, mental afflictions, all that stuff. But it is, there is, like Zach said, there's nothing quite like this, but it gets a lot of hate. And I think that's where I want to segue into quite possibly the greatest article from The Onion I've ever read. Did you look at this article at all, Zach? Yeah, I looked it over. Okay. So this is from, uh, like I said, I think way uh, whenever we were talking about (laughs) before we got to the plot. This article came out the day this movie was released. So it was certainly uh, satirizing the lead up to this movie. And I think to some extent what Zach was saying, how people were sick and tired of Benefer. They didn't want to hear about him anymore. The title of this article is Gili Focus Group Demands New Ending in Which Both Affleck and Lopez <laughs> Die. And the entire article goes on to describe how, you know, everybody, I think, you know, they they quote um, the head of Sony Pictures or something, they quote Breast, you know, a quote, you know, as The Onion does, talking about how it's like, wow, we never expected this kind of reaction, but time constraints won't let us film both of them dying. And the thing I really want to highlight that really stood out to me is the fake uh, note card that they have from one of the people who apparently was in one of these focus groups. It's in this article. It's a little picture off to the side. It is, it's a, a questionnaire, one page of a questionnaire that, that starts with part two. So apparently there was more to this, but, you know, the Onion just grabbed, they did their little, you know, less is more type of thing. as the, When they were good satire, they were doing. And... It was the please provide comments part. And the first question is, what did you think of the relationship between Gili and Ricky? As J-Lo's her name for most of the movie is Ricky. And then it's Rochelle at the end. That, another thing we didn't even talk about. We don't even know Jen- Jennifer Lopez's real character's name until the very end of the movie. The person responds with, wanted to see them kill each other every time one of them picked up a glass or car keys. I wanted to see them put them in the other one's eye. And then the whole, the rest of the questions. What did you think of the story? What did you think of the ending? Uh, What would you change about the ending? Would you recommend this movie to your friends? Under every single one of these is a different way for the two of these characters (laughs) to die. And I especially love the fact that once you get to question four, which is would you change anything about the ending, this this uh, correspondent writes, yes, Affleck and J-Lo should not fall in love, but accidentally drink molten lead so their organs boil and burn out of them and plop hissing and steaming on the floor <laughs> as they scream and writhe. And then in questions, oh, it skips five. So it goes from four to six, I'm just realizing. But in the remainder of the space on this form, the person does not answer any questions. He just continues to give ways <laughs> that they should die together. And it wonderfully ends at the bottom of the page with a, a very small scribbled in parentheses with an arrow more on other side. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do want to highlight that as he goes, because he goes, or this, or this, or this. But at one point it throws in, do not have Affleck and or Lopez crushed in a hydraulic press. While it would be emotionally satisfying to see this, it would be too Terminator. Instead, have them crushed by some sort of boulder or giant concrete slab. I love the fact that in his ideas for ways for these characters to die, he doesn't want to be too, um, too, 
<laughs> to uh, reminiscent of Terminator. This is just so great. This is hilarious to me, Zach. <laughs> We're gonna have to put this in the show notes. This this article yeah, because be it, is a, it is a glorious read. It is like I said, satire at its goddamn finest. Oh, it's fantastic. But yeah, I think that just goes what we're saying. Testament, this movie got so much hate that, you know, really wasn't, uh, I, I think we're saying now, wasn't warranted completely, right? Oh, well, okay. It doesn't deserve, that's the weird thing with this show. This is where Rob has to realize there are people in this world that aren't us. It's uh, the idea why, why that... Why do that? Why you gotta remind yeah, that? Yeah, I know. We gotta, we gotta bring ourselves back to reality. You no, it's just the people on the TV, right? It's us and all the people on the TV. Something like that. Um, again, I this is a movie for nobody. Mm, mm-hmm. Except for you and I. So yeah, I don't know. You're, you're right. I'm trying to think of a counterpoint to that, but no, you're absolutely right. It's it's for the it's for people who, you know, whether or not they think about it, that think in terms of cinemodities to some extent. It's the idea that like, can I think can you think of another example where a movie like this was made? And the marketing was convincing enough that it got at least some of an audience. I guess Vanilla Sky? Uh, mm, that's a good point. It, it would, whatever it would be, it would have to fall under incomprehensible blockbuster, right? Or maybe not blockbuster, but incomprehensible to some extent. I guess Vanilla Sky is the closest thing in the sense like you have a movie that's more or less, and I, I don't think there's anywhere, uh, Geely is nowhere near Vanilla Sky in the sense of, Vanilla Sky at least kind of makes sense toward the end. You know, it wraps itself up a little too too much. But this is, I I guess maybe something, again, like a cat in the hat where you sell a movie is one thing and you get in, you get this really weird, bizarro final product that doesn't really reflect what people were anticipating. Mm. I don't know. I, I would imagine there's a lot, there's at least some couples that on date night in July t- 2003 went to see this and walked out going, what the hell? <laughs> oh, that would have been I, great. I, I bet there's a lot of awkward, like after, after movie dinner dates that just was like, Okay. <laughs> I know for a fact if, if I had been on a date and went to see this movie, if this movie did not end the relationship, me saying God bless you penis later on would have definitely <laughs> ended the relationship. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't even think of the last time a movie like this came out where you had such a bizarro movie that died such a horrible death because the audience felt it was misled. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't think of one either. It's a that's an interesting question though, for sure. Um, to find other things that would fall into this pantheon, absolutely. And not just because something's bad, but because something's just so inexplicable. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's the thing about this. Like this is like it's like I don't know. Like we, like, we're kind of I think Rob and I are kind of incapable of calling a movie out and out bad. But like a lot of movies that just kind of bomb because the marketing was misleading <laughs> is because like oh either the final product was bad or it wasn't what people were expecting. Yes. With with this. You kind of get what they're selling. You get a Jennifer Lopez Ben Affleck movie. You get that though, but everything in between that is the last thing you're truly anticipating. Yeah, hundred percent. It, it it defies all expectations. I wouldn't even say subverts. I would say completely defies expectations. It's kind of like going to like a sandwich shop and you get two pieces of bread, but in between you get like a newspaper. <laughs> Um, some leaves, um, dirt, uh, I don't know. Like you get, you get dirt with night crawlers in it. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's like, there's something in there, but it's like you, the wrappers, what it should be, but everything else isn't. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, 
I think that this might be a, a great segue into our questions, because I think that's where I'm ready to go next. Was there any? I, I think there's so much we haven't discussed in this movie. Um, read that could go on for. And what we'll do? Go read. Oh God. I don't think I promise it. Like, is this one of those movies that like we could honestly just put the entire like, Rob? Can we insert the entire audio of the movie into the episode? I know. I was. I. I feel like I was thinking that earlier as we were discussing. You know, how do we talk about this movie? Because there is, it's so dense with this stuff, and there's so much. Like, we didn't even talk about the in every relationship. There's a bull and a cow. We didn't talk about the whole uh, scene where the the uh, girl ex girlfriend of J Lo shows yep. up and. And she's like, I'm gonna let's all have a threesome. You want it, Ben Affleck. You know you do. And he's like, This isn't fucking lesbian talk circle time. And <laughs> like there's so much more. We barely scratched the surface, I feel. <laughs> Literally every line of dialogue is like this. Yeah, yeah. To some 100%. degree. Not everyone's a home run, but they're all at least doubles. Oh my god. It's crazy. All right, yeah. folks. We're going to insert the halfway through <laughs> yeah, at this point, we're going to insert the audio of the movie. And it's two Here. hours long. <laughs> two hours. This is going to be the second longest episode of Cinematis ever. Second only to the Shining discussion. Still, some. I think we'll we'll insert an entire movie into the episode. It'll still be shorter than the Shining discussion. Um, <laughs> and we're going to do it and be like, um, um, we're going to release this, and we're going to both of us are just going to be sitting, just waiting for an email from Martin Breasts, like <laughs> filing copyright claim against us, and then go, okay, we found him. <laughs> I, I I wonder if anybody would even care. Like I would love to insert the entire audio of this, like not not the video, but insert the entire audio onto YouTube, like the graphic of like the poster or the Cinematis logo, and see if it would be flagged. I wonder <laughs> if they're even patrol. I wonder if anybody would even be patrol. Like if yes, if you uploaded the movie, someone would come after you. Yeah. But if you ins- inserted the entire audio, I would love to do that as an experiment. <laughs> insert the entire audio of a movie into an episode and see if we got any complaints. We're risking the whole restaurant on this. <laughs> I would love to do that. And this might be the sort of experimental thing that the podcast could do to kind of reflect our reverence for Gili. Yeah, yeah. Oh God. We're we're making you're you're selling me too much on this. <laughs> <laughs> we're Thelma and Lee's we're going over the cliff except the oh, cliff is Gili. Yep. Yep. Oh geez. Oh it's great. So yeah I guess I guess with that being said, do we want to uh oh, sure. I guess I I should say would you like to lay some of that sweet cinematities on me? <laughs> <laughs> gobble gobble. Um uh, sure, Cinematic without a doubt. Um, this is this is a uh, the catacly- the cinematic Cinematic's cataclysm uh, without a doubt. Uh, I like. Late- I really like that. It's it's cataclysmic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is something that can. This will destroy the world, folks. Uh, Gili unchecked <laughs> has the potential to uh, wreck universes. Um, it's the Galactus of of, of movies. It's going <laughs> to consume them. Uh, a late night movie, without a doubt. Um, this is one of those movies that's so bizarre, and yet it has that familiarity of like, oh, remember the remember the Benifer movie? Yeah. People were like, yeah, I remember that. I'm like, we're going to watch it, and people are like, really that? And I'm like, yeah, you'll dig it. But it has that has that sugar coating that people. Uh, you know what this is? I think the best food analogy for this film. It's like it's like a. Uh, a beetle covered in chocolate. Like, oh, chocolate. And you bite into it and you're like, oh, I'm eating a bug right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, remember at the uh, before Avengers Endgame at the candy shop, rest in peace, uh, that had like the lollipop with the bugs <laughs> in it? Like I think it's like a little more hidden, you know, but but something, yeah, yeah, that's a good yeah, analogy. That's what for it is. Sure. That's what this movie is. This movie is a chocolate covered bug. 100%. It's not gonna kill you, but the idea of it might. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I have to just uh, mirror the sentiment. Cinematities. My answer is so much yes. 
I, I think you put it great where, you know, the wrapper is there, but what's inside is, is totally defies your expectations. Uh, just like with the candy one as well. Late night. I've, I've never done it before. I've, I've only, every time I've watched this movie has been by myself, I think just to come to terms with it and un- wrap my head around it, but I want to do it. I'm going to do it. People need to see this and, you know, maybe they'll implode halfway through or 10 minutes in who knows, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. Uh, maybe they'll sign a waiver. How have them sign a waiver beforehand. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's such a hard yes to both cinematics and late night movie. This is, this is something else. This, like Zach said, it's up there with the book of Henry. It's in that special place in the catalog. Oh God. It's, it's unreal. <laughs> I, it's, it even ranks higher than elves. As much as I love Bunce McGavin and all of his shenanigans and elves and, uh, oral, like as yeah. much <laughs> as I love moments like this, like, Elves has its moments and they're great, but this is just like this mm-hmm. is the point where it's there's so many moments you lose track of them. Like, there's ne- like, even Book of Henry, like, Book of Henry's insane for the entire runtime, but it's nowhere near as sustained as this. Absolutely. This movie never lets go, yeah. I, I would agree completely. Oh, and that's oh, that's true. I, and it might be truly unparalleled in that sense when it comes to cinematics. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I'm in total agreement, and I'm glad I'm glad you thought so. I was definitely like because it's been a while now. I've seen this a few times before we even decided to do this, but there was always that little twinge in the back of my head. I was like, oh god, is Zach gonna like hate this? And then as like we got closer, I was like, no. There's no way Zach is going to hate this. Like, like Zach will understand this. <laughs> That's the thing. I don't hate anything unless it's just shallow. That's the problem. Is that anything? Like, yes. The only time I'll hate yeah. something is if it's, like, vacuous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is the furthest thing from vacuous. Whether it be author's <laughs> intent or Rob and I projecting onto it, it got there. It's kind of like, it doesn't matter how you win. As long as you get that W, that's all that matters. Yeah. Oh, a win okay. is a win. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I guess that brings us to snacks. I have a, I think I have a good bit. A laundry um, list, I would imagine. Uh, one of them is more of a question, uh, it, because when we first get introduced to Brian in the assisted living home and, and Ben Affleck's trying to like, kidnap him and get him out of there, um, he's, he's eating sunflower seeds, but Ben Affleck, or G- Giggly, calls them poly seeds, I believe. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. this before? Poly no, I have not. Neither have I, and so I was trying to think of something where it's like we would have poly seeds on the menu, but we wouldn't describe what they are or anything like that. But they would just be sunflower seeds, you know, maybe like as an appetizer or something like that. Sure. Make, yeah. So yeah, I was kind of blown away, and when I googled poly seeds to look for it, uh, the first result on Google is, of course, uh, Urban Dictionary. So, <laughs> oh jeez. So this could be like a legit thing. Maybe when Martin Brest was writing this, um, he knew uh, sunflower seeds as poly seeds. I have never known them as poly seeds. And like I said, we both were born in the Bronx. And I, maybe he grew up in the Bronx longer than I did. But I've never heard that before in my life. So, um, you know, once again, it fits with the motif of the restaurant. We have something on the menu that's not explained. And the waiters don't explain it. <laughs> Um, another Perfect. Thing, yes. A, another thing that I, I think we should grab right from this movie is that when uh, J-Lo and Ben Affleck have to go meet Lewis to go see Al Pacino, they have to leave uh, Brian behind at Giggly's apartment. And, of course, when you leave someone behind, or in the way this movie goes, as Giggly's thinking it, when you leave a pet behind, you have to give it food. And Giggly gives Brian a bowl of cereal with milk, and whole cookies on top. 
<laughs> so I think this would be a perfect sin emodities thing for the kids, you know? That was my idea for a snack. I was going to do that. The thing where you just smash cookies up into a bunch of milk, and you're like, here's your dinner, eat it. <laughs> Were you thinking for the, the kids or for the whole restaurant? I, I, I wasn't that specific. I just love okay. that. God, that's another aspect of this movie we didn't even touch upon. <laughs> That he's, that he's like, I'm hungry. And he gives him all this weird stuff. <laughs> what do you want to drink? Uh, soda. I'm out of soda. What about water? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> we'll do that too. Somebody asks for soda, let's give them water. We're out of soda. What about water? <laughs> G- absolute gem, folks. Need to, need to at least, maybe you don't have to watch this, but we just listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> Audio so drama. But yeah. I, I was also. Um, I was trying to pick it out. I, I don't think it's ever shown, which is I'm a bummer. I'm bummed out by, but very clearly in the scene with our two uh, leads, J Lo and Ben Affleck, with Pacino and Lewis, Lewis is eating something as he's sitting there, and then after Al Pacino shoots him, Al Pacino proceeds to start eating that same thing. But I I could never make out what it is. I don't think it's ever shown. It's just like it, it's something handheld. Like it looks like it could be like you know like uh, peanuts or, or pistachios or something that's, you know, he's picking them up and popping them in and chewing. But I couldn't make out what it was. Did you have any insight? Were you able to glean anything from that? No, nah, not really. I didn't speak okay. to me. Yes. And so I was just like, what the hell is he eating? Because I want to know what food is in the movie. <laughs> so the last two snacks I have, I, I think, here we go. This is really getting into the, the Gili feel. Pies and ice cream on the customer's head that they have to eat through their brain and skull. <laughs> if they can do it, of course. I, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is where I want to go with this, Zach. I think this has come up before. I don't know if it's come up a lot, maybe once. Some type of eating competition. You know, like if ah. you got to finish a big pizza or you got to finish so many hot dogs or something like that in a fixed amount of time. We don't give the customer a time limit, but we, we set it up so that they, they have to eat Pies and ice cream that's on top of their head through their brain and skull. And I'm not saying that's possible right now. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying we leave it as a competition to our daring customers to try and figure out how to how to perform, how to complete. But it's going to be, you know, Marie Callender's pies and ice cream. It's so good. Your tongue has to slap through your brain to get to it. What do you think? <laughs> How can I argue with that, Rob? And so now, if we have this, what do we give? Okay, clearly, if someone cannot do this, they get, if, if they can't do it because they give up, we put them on the wall of shame. There has to be a wall of shame in the restaurant. I don't know if we have a wall of shame. Um, it, it's I think don't I think I came up with something to demoralize our workers once, and so that might be the wall of shame. But if you can't do it because you quit, you go on the wall of shame. Maybe you're not allowed back into the restaurant or something. No, we want we want to come back if. If they if they fail this because they die in the process, end of story. We just have to dispose of the body. Great episode of Law & Order Cinemodities right there. But what do we give them if they can actually do this? What would the prize for something for the – maybe not thinking about how ridiculous this idea is. What would the prize be in a Gili-related eating competition? Like I feel like whatever tri- we come up with – A trip to the Baywatch. <laughs> okay, you sold me. That's perfect. They a trip get, to the Baywatch. They get it's just like the the prize puzzle on Wheel of Fortune. They get an all expenses paid trip to the Baywatch. <laughs> there you go. Okay, perfect. You nailed it. You nailed it, Zach. Absolutely. 
the last snack I have fully in the the meta-ness of this movie, I would love to have an incredibly expensive meal on our menu. Like, kind of, you know, like what we were saying with Vanilla Sky, where we have, like, an expensive meal and it's good food, but you have to eat it through the mask. I'm thinking we have something, a meal that's incredibly expensive, like it looks very fancy, but it con- it consists of just cheap food. Like it consists, <laughs> it consists of, you know, maybe like gas station stuff and, and, you know, like cold cuts or something like that. And it would definitely be like kind of what you were saying where the wrapper's good and or what I expected it was to be something special, but it's actually just, you know, garbage. And that's kind of me playing off of the, the the when this movie the reception this movie got and stuff like that but maybe kind of the inverse of what we did with the um the uh, the good food on vanilla sky where they just had to eat through the mask and and finish it all i love that that one you put that caveat you put on there we make the customer finish all their food that's great damn straight <laughs> and so i i was kind of thinking you know that also in this this cheap food would maybe give the customer like food poisoning like it's guaranteed to give you food poisoning but i don't i don't want to do that because this movie shouldn't give you food poisoning like you said with the with the bug and the chocolate like it might not sit well with you and you might be like oh i didn't really like that after the fact but it's not going to make you sick it's not going to repulse you you know this isn't like we've been saying for this whole discussion this isn't like terrible it's not like painstaking it's just offensive in some ways but really there's there's a moment moments full of miracles right there there you go that was it. That was all I had for the, the restaurant. Uh, did you have any more snacks? No, nah, you stole mine, and I'm kind of um, content okay. with that. So I guess then I have to ask, um, I, I know we said that we have the, the pantheon of our cinemodities, but uh, with how intrigued I've become with Martin Brest, I think I want to make the formal pitch for a, uh, a bust of his in, uh, in our hall of direct or storefront of directors, because don't we have a main street from Disney Disneyland Sing Along Fun, where one of <laughs> one of the storefronts is busts of directors? I think Martin Brest deserves it wholeheartedly. What would you say? I don't know if it's. I don't think he, he would want it. True, because I don't think this is. His, I don't think he would. Uh, it would kind of be there. I don't know if he'd want it though. Like I don't think he like much like again. Book of Henry is a Colin Madman Trevorrow film. Uh, oh my God! Uh, the Peter Jackson, Dead Alive, mm-hmm. all these other people, Joe Dante—they made the film they wanted to make. This isn't the film mm-hmm. he wanted. That's a good point. So, like, I, I don't know what we do for a film that's disowned. Like, what would be the equivalent of that of of a bust for a film that the filmmaker <laughs> wants no parts of? Well, I guess I'm also kind of considering his filmography in there. Like, Meet Joe Black. I don't think I don't think Meet Joe Black on its own would warrant a bust to the director. But that, for, from everything I found, that is the movie Martin Brest wanted to make. Metro Black is weird, but it's 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 peculiar more than it's just like a straight up just like what Definitely. the hell. I, it's I a peculiar movie. Yeah, I guess I. My would mother wanna... loves Metro Black. Yes, she does not. Right. She does not view Metro Black as an oddity. It's Nobody can look in at your head. Man. <laughs> Nobody on earth can look at Gili and be like, oh, this isn't weird. There's not a single yes. person in existence that could watch that movie and be like, yeah, that was fine. Yeah, okay, okay, that, that's a good point. Maybe we'll come back to this, because I really do want to see Midnight Run now, uh, after everything I heard about it. That's supposed to be kind of strange in this sense. Scent of a Woman, I can probably do without. Going in style would be interesting to see. Beverly Hills Cop, I, I have no interest in seeing. Um for a multitude of reasons, but I, I, I think, you know, maybe once I dive a little deeper into the, the Martin Brest uh, filmography, if I can ever find a damn 
way to watch Hot Dogs for Gogan, then maybe we'll come back to the bust. So how about this? We we have a spot reserved for him. It doesn't say it's reserved for him, but we have a reserved spot <laughs> for, for later use. We could just slip that bust in there, you know? Sure off, sure. I don't wanna I don't wanna lose it completely because Martin Brest is I've, I've become so enthralled by his career now that you know, oh, he's not on Twitter. He can't be on Twitter. No, no he's not on Twitter. Oh, got to find some of the people they interview might in the Playboy article might be on Twitter. <laughs> Imagine just Twitter tweeting them. Where's Martin Brest? We'll tweet Jennifer Lopez. I want to talk to him <laughs> in a, in a uh, non-negative way. <laughs> uh, well, two last things about this I just want to bring up that I thought sure. were interesting to tie it back to Star Wars. The uh, composer of the soundtrack is John Powell, who did the soundtrack for Solo, a Star Wars story. Oh, um, and that's one thing in this movie I found really weird. There's sequences where everybody's talking and there's there's no music. It's just ambient like sounds. Oh yeah, which just seems like what? Why isn't there music? Like this is making the sequence even like 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 the dialogue smacking me over the head with uh, awkwardness and this the the general silence. Mm-hmm. All the more just peculiar. I'm like okay, and then um the costume designer supervisor is uh, Michael Kaplan, who's like he did the Star Wars sequel trilogy and he's got oh. he's been working for like. 30 40 years now and it's so weird that he's the one that gave jennifer lopez her super super revealing outfits uh her kimono that she has sex in yeah and uh (laughs) and ben affleck's like uh like uh bowling shirts oh that's right yeah he looks like such a goober in this movie (laughs) he looks like charlie sheen from two and a half men he he, he, which is weird considering this came out like a month and a half before that started yeah you're right i didn't even think of that that's a great point yep (laughs) yeah this this movie folks you could dissect this movie on practically every layer oh yeah oh my god i'm even i'm even scrolling through my four pages of notes we didn't even talk about how there was Rumors and, and people saying that the uh, Jennifer Lopez's uh, ass and breasts were photoshopped in the movie poster. I didn't even bring that up. Oh, my God. We the, Okay. This is going to be a uh, monthly thing, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> Every month here at the Cinematis in 2020 as we discuss a different layer of Gili. Every bonus episode after the two-year extravaganza is just going to be like 30 minutes more on Gili. <laughs> what we do, we're going to do Gili Minute. We're going to take every minute of this film and break it down. Yeah. Oh, we didn't. Uh, we didn't talk about how Brian is watching Sheep in the Big City at a certain point. Yes. And then he's watching Monkey Bar later on. Like, oh my God, there's so much. All right, in Rob. This. There's 121 minutes of this film, Rob. That's at least what over two years. We can talk about this film. Definitely. Probably longer. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. It's like what a hundred? What 108 weeks? That's like like what a mo- like, like two years and like two months. We could we could oh, do that yeah. for 26 months. We talk about Geely. Okay. Af- okay. So after, uh, yeah, we'll do the. That'll be the trade-off. Once we get into um the the 2021 constant anniversary, the year-long anniversary of 2001, it'll be interspersed with Gili information. <laughs> there you go, folks. If Cinemodis ever runs out of cinematic oddities, we will delve into the two-year extravaganza of Gili. Oh God, it's fantastic. That's, that's the that's the break in case of emergency at the restaurant. It's a Gili 26-month-long <laughs> podcast discussion. Oh man. All right. Uh, anything else that you had for Gili? Or are we no, ready to put it back in the vault? I'm ready to put it back in the vault. All right. But, we have, we I, only, we're the only ones with the keys, right? Yeah, so we have to turn them both at the same time. Oh, one of those. Okay, okay. Are they going to do like retinal scans and fingerprints and all that stuff too? It, it's a combination of uh, Terminator 2 and uh, Charlie's Angels, the first one, where we have all this like fingerprint scanning stuff. and. Uh... <laughs> I love it. 
Oh, I love it. Perfect. All right. Yeah, under lock yeah. and key for sure. And I would like to make a suggestion as to how we close out this episode uh, music-wise. Okay. Okay. I think we should play some rendition of the Baywatch theme. Mmm. Okay, I could get behind that. And of course, I think we also have to, at the very end, maybe a little overlap, and as the outro, we'll get uh, uh, Justin Bartha's fantastic yes. rendition of uh, I Like Big Butts in there as well. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, the, I, right. I guess the, uh, something else I didn't say was that Weird Al, uh, his virus alert song, The Virus Makes Your TV Record Gigli. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Alrighty, Rob, so you want to tell our audience what we're doing next week for our centennial episode? Yes, episode 100. We have finally reached it. Everybody said we wouldn't make it. Uh, everybody, I said we wouldn't make it everybody. last week. <laughs> yes, and uh, we we did it. Uh, we are talking about something that both Zach and I have been uh, excited to talk about for a, a quite a long time, I think since he learned about it and I learned about it. Something we've mentioned many, many times. Uh, I believe the, the true title of the movie is Hester Shaw, right? I think that's even what is in one of the spreadsheet lists. Is it's all okay. Much like we talk about other things on this podcast when it comes to musical stings, we when you think of this movie and you hear this name, you can't just think of the the name Hester Shaw. It's first you have to think of it as this Hester Shaw, and then while you're doing it, you have to imagine piercing green like LED eyes. Yep. Yeah, the Green Eye Terminator. What, Daddy? What'd you call it? Daddy Term? Daddy Rope? What was it? Uncle Daddy Robot or something like that? <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. Daddy Terminator. I don't know. <laughs> Father Terminator. Terminator Robot. Terminator yes, Dad. We are. We are finally doing the uh, the most recent in. I would say I would think the most recent incomprehensible blockbuster Zach and I have have both seen. Mortal Engines. And it's going to be a very special episode because Rob is also going to have read the book that it's based on. Cusack's response of... There's a book? There's a book. <laughs> Get ready for that next week. There's oh. four books, Zach. <laughs> Be Arthur? No, 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 no. 